Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk Splits. In one episode we have for you today, returning to the show, Nancy Brill and Al Brill. We're going to be talking about SSD, Boston versus Philadelphia Hardcore, and of course this fantastic new book, How Much Art Can You Take on the Great Radio Raheem Records and Publishing Company that have put out some fantastic books. And we'll be talking about, I'll talk about all that in one second. Uh, if you want to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Lefford Damien. There is a YouTube page, a Facebook page, a Instagram page, a TikTok page. All of those are found at Turned Out of Punk on their respective platforms. And they are run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham. And he will get the message to me. You can also find me playing in a band called fucked up there's more information about that at fucked up.cc or fucked up on uh, social media as well got some dates coming up for the band and got some merch and whatever over there and music of course music that's what it's all about not merch well playing live too it's about playing live all right on to today's show as i said it's a doozy returning to the show nancy brill and al brill a a, a great pairing because of course they live together and have been married for a number of years, but Nancy was a fantastic guest on the show and it wrote an incredible book. I'm not holding your coat, which you can pick up wherever you get your, your favorite books. Um, and, uh, it is a, a must read for, for adults and, and fans of hardcore. But I also think if, if you can get your young people to read a book, it is a great book for young people to read about hardcore and punk and history and just doing it yourself and growing up as a woman in the punk scene in a hardcore scene. And it's a, uh, it's a must read, a must read. And speaking of must reads, she has collaborated now with her husband, Al Brill from the great SSD on this book about SSD. How much art can you take? And this thing is before I, well, we talk about it in the episode. I don't want to be redundant on this thing, but it is on the fantastic Radio Raheem uh, books and, and record label publishing company empire that has put out some fantastic books. You can find most of those over at deathwishinc.com and uh, order yourself a copy of this book. Order some of the other books they put out because they've got a lot of great books out there. Uh, this is a good episode. I am very excited for you to hear it. Not all the opinions expressed necessarily reflect uh, the opinions of your host on on people, but Al is is a uh, you know Al is one of my favorite people, and I really uh, I'm very fortunate that I've gotten a chance to get to know him because he's someone who lives by a code, and you don't want to cross this guy because you'll hear in this episode uh and nancy of course is one of my favorite people as well and someone that you should follow both these people on social media because they are both very active on social media and nancy a lot of great stories and photos of the past and a lot of great perspective on on hardcore and punk so getting them together to talk about this oh you got a you got a great episode right here I'm not going to ramble on any more about this thing. Uh, when we were recording this, Al was about to go back in for a sort of update on his uh, battle with cancer. Uh, Al talks about going through cancer 
very openly on his social media and of course talks about it in this episode and he has gotten some good news about his treatment and it looks like things are uh are, are going great in terms of uh recovery and treating this thing so uh sending love and gratitude for that to al and nancy and big things might be in the works for ssd this year I don't know. There's been some allusions made on social media to things kind of happening. Uh, I'm not going to speculate on that and I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Sit back, relax and enjoy Nancy and Al Brill on turned out of punk splits. Al, Nancy, thank you both for coming back to the show. Thanks for having us on. Thank you. Well, this is, as I was telling you just off air now, this is a huge one to have both of you back on because I feel like, you know, there's there's few couples out there that can have such a unique perspective on, you know, American hardcore at its foundational period, but from two separate cities that have completely different vibes that I, I, I love deeply and in very different ways and uh, anyway very excited to have you on together for this thing and also this book that you've put together like before the book came out because i'm a fan of you know yourselves and cooch and rich at radio rahim i was like i'll get it no matter what but i'm like what could be in it that i don't know or haven't seen at this point because ssd is one of my all-time bands so i've I've, ch- I've immersed myself in the world, but there's so much in this book. It's crazy how in depth this thing is. Well, thank you. It was uh, it was a labor of love. <laughs> I think the book the book was a very important uh, very important thing that we did that kind of circled the wagons and wrapped everything up. I think SSD was a very like visual physical band, so I think uh, to have just the wreckage was selling ourselves a little short. We wanted you know to have these. This photo book was uh, was really the culmination of a lot, a lot. So and that's the thing I was kind of that kind of really hit me, and I think I even maybe brought this up last time. But how much of an aesthetic vision uh, SSD is, and like it's almost like a, a like an art piece, like through the visuals to the to the lyrics to everything to it. Like it's it's not even a band. And I think the way you talked even about how you approached the guitar in the last episode. Um, it just, there's very few bands that you can kind of say that about where like, this is a, especially when you look at the book in the early years with the black and white photos and just like the presentation of the band is, is, I don't know, very thought out. It seems. I, I tell, I tell him this all the time that the style that he created with, um, you know, Berthold city, and even just with his big, thick handwriting, when he made flyers, became iconic and he doesn't see it and he doesn't admit to it. And even on the cover of the book, I wanted his handwriting as the uh, can you take part? And he was like, no, that's stupid. And I'm like, and Cooch and I were like, yes, yes. You (laughs) You got to do it. Yeah. He doesn't, he doesn't realize the artistic impact that he's had on the scene. He just doesn't get it and doesn't believe it. So, well, it's funny. Cause like, since you were on Toby Vale, um, from uh, bikini kill was on the podcast a few times and and she even brought up ssd and so like here's ssd as an influence on riot girl in a way or you know nirvana rocking the shirt but like you're saying it's also this aesthetic influence that defines the aesthetic that 
kids still adhere to you know there's bands that still kind of look at the ssd record and like let's just rip this off let's just steal this font mm. but it's but it's also in the same way that i think the ramones don't really get credit for how much of a thought out band that was like it's always kind of like dismissed as being like oh it was just this thing that kind of happened and they just went on stage dressing the way they dress it's like no no all this stuff there's thought put into and there's like a aesthetic choices made and that really comes off in the book when you're talking about the formation of the band and you really see that kind of laid out that you you had a vision for this thing well i mean i just i don't want to certainly wasn't like a test tube kind of thing like where like uh, that kind of a planning went into it you know it is, I think it's pretty organic, but, but everything I do in life really has a plan, you know, like, I mean, uh, I, I see life through a Gantt shot, you know, everything is like, I got to do this, this, and this, and this, you know, so uh, that's, that's been my whole life, you know, but, but, it, but it definitely, I try, you know, it was kind of organic how it all came together and, you know, a couple, couple things here or there, and it wouldn't have ended up how it did, may, might never got even out of the, out of the starting gate, you know. Uh, so I do feel that, you know, uh, I don't know, <laughs> just you work hard, good things will happen, I guess. You know? Yeah, it's, it's definitely like, that's something that comes across in the book too, is, you know, the, the, the labor of it, doing something because you want to do the process. And like, you know, you're talking about Nancy, it's been like the hardest process to make this book that you've ever, any project you've ever done, but there is like an importance to it and a weight to it and then here we are talking about you know these records that you put out you know, like as a young person years later that are still being felt and still having impact so it's good you put the thought into it yeah i mean there's always been like certain seriousness about me maybe would it like I, I, when we used to go on road on the road which wasn't that often but a, a big california trip by by like maybe the third or fourth day the guys would end up calling me dad by, by like, uh, uh, you know, just not on purpose, not to mess with me, just like somehow they would call me dad. It would like accidentally call me dad, you know, like, uh, yeah. so, you know, I, I was always the straight guy, although I think I'm pretty funny. Uh, and, uh, you know, but I definitely have a pro, you know, I'm a process oriented guy. So I do follow a process and, you know, I don't admit to, uh, you know, always having all the answers. Certainly the process changes along the way, you know, you got got to take the data in and kind of reformulate often, you know, but, but I do look at the world through those kind of lenses, you know, I, I can't ever change it really, you know, I mean, right to this day, that's how I, I kind of operate. Did you notice that aesthetic back then, Nancy? Like, could, did you notice that this band was presented differently when you first? Absolutely. Absolutely. It was one of the things that drew me to it. When I bought that record, you know, the kids will have their say, the whole way it was laid out, the style, it was just so bang in your face, boom, you know? And then when I went to um, see them play in New York uh, at Staten Island, again, it was just explosive. And I just love that. I just thought that was so cool. And then I meet Al and he's totally different than anyone I ever met in my life in the way he acts and presents himself and thinks his brain works completely different than everyone else. I understand that more now as an educator, but at the time it could be off-putting at times. Um, but I learned to really love it. And I gravitated to towards it because it was truthful and it was 
uh, powerful and it was honest and um, it was badass. I liked it. Well, then you need like, you know, it's, it's, it's weird to say, but you kind of need someone who's wired differently and has that kind of like dad energy, you know, in the book, Al the asshole um, was something I'm so <laughs> never to say to you. <laughs> you talk about, um, but like you need someone with that kind of energy, and I say this as someone in a band with someone with that kind of energy um, that to kind of drive it because that's otherwise it's just going to be a bunch of buddies hanging out in the practice space, having a good time, drinking beers. I don't think much would have gotten done if um, Al didn't take the ideas and the attitude that he had i don't know how you can answer better than i no no i mean that 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 you know that hanging just getting never getting out of the practice space i mean i can i can uh i can see that as a potential you know but and and certainly my goal was to somehow make sure that we got out of the practice space and you know so uh, you know definitely driven uh i guess you know looking back on it now i i i you know i, I am a somewhat confident person much i don't know why uh but i i want to you know look, look back on it uh you know i don't know if i you know when you get older things change when i'm not now sometimes i i, I think like right i never was ever scared of playing on stage or anything like that but sometimes now as an adult i think of i start to think like wow i watch videos on youtube and i see you know uh all those people standing on stage next to the people playing like you know people really uh want to be on the stage with the band and I start, sometimes I like think I get in, actually like an intimidated thinking now about it, you know, with all these people would be standing around looking at me. You know? So I don't know what happened then, but I didn't think of it. And now I think about it and I'm kind of like, I mean, I'm not saying I get nervous, but I just think about, wow, there's a lot of people really looking at you. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know. It's just different. It, I mean, you must know you're touring all over the place. Right. I mean, if you start thinking about it, maybe you, you, st you start to change the way you, you act, you know, I, maybe it's best to not think, you know? hundred percent. No, it's, it's like a, a Peter Pan thing. You have to believe you can fly, you know, like, and if, as soon yeah. as you stop believing, it's really hard to get back up there. Cause it is so unnatural to do this, especially, especially in a hardcore band in a lot of ways, because it's not just like performative, you got to try and be authentic up there while being performative. Sometimes I think that maybe some of the health things I've gone through has taken that down with me, which is, you know, a shame because, uh, I, I, I don't want to ever lose that confidence and that, but I mean, definitely I feel different. That's the best way I can put it. You know? Yeah. But, and that's, but that's also, I think also just about getting older and you, you begin to understand the world differently. Like it's, it's fascinating kind of thinking about how different I view the world, you know, and even yourself, like I, I, I funnily, I, I went to a screening of America's hardcore recently. Um, and I interviewed the director and watching that just how different people are even from 20 years ago and how different they feel about the world, probably from when that time that movie was shot. I'm sure there's many things people say in that documentary. They wish they could take back. It's, it's just the reality of getting older and, and wiser and, realizing maybe uh maybe it is weird to be on stage and having i think you call them stage leeches in the book but all over the stage watching you play strangely strangely enough i you know over the years uh and maybe this is to a fault i feel i'm kind of my view of the world my view of me and the view i, I do feel 
amazingly consistent, you know, like, I mean, for whatever the views I had, I mean, with a little tweaking, you know, I mean, I had, I had a view of, I think I wrote a song, even I went back to some of the lyrics I wrote about unity. Like originally when I, when I crafted that first record, you know, I wrote some lyrics like that, you know, lyrically, you definitely could attack some of my lyrics, uh, uh, unity. And I, you know, one time I thought that, that, you know, when I, when we were part of this scene, I was like, you know, oh yeah, we're all together. We're all together, you know, but then I quickly realized we're not so together, you know? And uh, so that, that ended pretty quick. It didn't take many years for me to give up on the whole unity thing, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, I really, I really, you know, I don't know. I think, uh, I don't think it's a bad thing either. You know, like we shouldn't be all the same, you know, but uh, I don't know. I didn't, I don't see, I guess I didn't, I didn't, uh, I started to lose that, the common bond maybe that brought us all. I think the common bond that brought us all there is obviously we're all music fans, you know, but, but sometimes things get twisted and the, the whole right wing thing entering, you know, the scene is really disturbing. Like, you know, the way I look at it, this, this, there's never been a room for a right wing uh, thing in the, in the scene from, you know, there always been elements of it. And I think it, you know, maybe it comes and goes or something, but this, there's never been room for that. And uh, so, you know, I uh, feel still feel the same way today. But it's weird because punk, you know, like, you know, obviously that's my world view of punk rock, that there's no yep. room for any of that right wing, you know, ultimately fascist bullshit at all in this right. thing. But at the same time, that is something that's existed in punk, you know, and you see it in the Ramones, like it's baked in the DNA. You have a Johnny and a Joey in punk rock. And I mean, politically, you know, and yes, yes, I, you know, like, you know, completely at odds with each other. And the, the Ramones parallels between SSD and the Ramones really kind of hit me when I was looking at the book and how it's almost like the political obviously is inverse between you and Springer, but there's definitely like a relationship that feels as maybe as fraught as Johnny and Joey's in a way. And obviously not with the romantic entanglement aspect, but certainly in terms of the world view. Well, Springer sees... I don't know how Springer sings the the world. Actually, he, you know, it, I don't know. Nancy, jump in, help me use the right I, words. I mean, I think I think politically, you and Springer are on the same page. You know, so yeah. we don't. Okay. I don't really know what page he's on. Yeah, no. From just the brief talks that I've had with him, um, I think you are. Um, Springer doesn't express himself as much or as well as you do constantly. Uh, you know, Springer doesn't have social media. You know, Springer. Um, you know, who knows what Springer's doing half the time. But again, I don't think that, um, I, you know, you guys. We're different. Are, we're, we're completely different. We're definitely but, completely but, different. But I don't see Springer having any okay, well, then, yeah, uh, right wing tendencies then. or anything like yeah. that ever. Yeah. You know, he's a kid from Quincy, Mass. Um, you know, we're the most liberal state in, you know, in the union here. <laughs> I don't think yeah. I can't see. He's um, kind of insane. In, I guess would be the best way to describe it. You know, like, he has I mean, the worst case of arrested development that I ever had. I don't think he um, cares a lot about politics, um, but I don't think he'd tolerated a, a neo-Nazi either for five yeah. seconds. So, yeah. you know, maybe obviously taking back the political thing, but like there's definitely like a completely different worldview of the band you know the world you know like just sort of like a kind of like different approach to the well, world like the, cl the most classic the, scene sorry go on the oh, no, you might be going to it you're going to talk about the van scene where i where you stole something or something like that that's the best representation of the differences i think between you know i just have a i just that's 
Can you, is that the story we're going to tell? Oh, no, I was oh. going to actually go to the story where just in America's hardcore, where he comes into the room and the look on your face, like watching this America's hardcore, like 20 some odd years later, still pop me huge. Like there's just some sort of, but that's the thing about this band, like in the same way with the Ramones, the, the, the project of the Ramones, like what the Ramones was doing was bigger than the relationships of the individuals within the band. And I kind of feel that is probably true with SSD too, but like, there is such a fundamental difference. Was there, you know, obviously I had the singer earlier, but was it just because spring is such an incredible front person that you're like, this is going to be like, like well, we had, we had a singer, you know, we, we, we played with a guy, I wouldn't even call him our singer, but you know, his, uh, his name was Joe, I think, but uh, yeah, Joe I wouldn't, call, yeah, I wouldn't, uh, it didn't last that long, you know, and he, he didn't. So then anyways, then we found Springer and uh, I guess my naivete was I, I, I never, once you're in, you're in, you know, I never looked at like, okay, let's throw him out or something like this, you know? So once he was in, which was, you know, we decide, okay, you can be the singer. And I don't think he even auditioned much, you know, it's just, okay, let's go with it. That's, that's how kind of organic and pure it was. We didn't really get into like, well, what can you do? Can you actually sing? You know, it didn't even get that far. Just like showed up and he, we started, you know, that's how it went. And, uh, I mean, I just think that um, when you talk about the van story, the van story is they're they're driving across country um, where you see like one uh, mom and pop store every hundred miles and they go into the store. And when they come out, Al discovers that Springer stole some batteries. He announces he stole. He announces, hey, look at all these batteries I stole. Now, this is the difference between me and that just like freaked me out. You know, like, I mean number one you know these these people only see like two cars a, a day or something you know he's stealing from them you know number one I, I number two i don't steal you know i don't steal from people so i mean that's how he views the world you know and 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 i don't see it that way you know like you don't steal from people you you have more honor you know and i don't want to put him down just you know those are some of the early indications that me and him you know because i don't want to turn this into a pick on spring thing no, 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 yeah. I, I actually hoped i i'd hoped when when we kind of re started this thing up with the book and everything that maybe, you know, he would have grown up a little bit and, uh, and we could have, uh, we could actually enjoy each other's company. You know, that's what I was hoping for, but, but what I've come to find out in the, in the two years leading up to this, it's probably more conflicted than it's ever been. You know, he's, he's, he's clearly got, uh, you know, I got issues, so I don't want to pick on him and, but he's got issues too, you know? Uh, and the end of that story, the end of that story is that Al turned the van around, drove back and made him return. The batteries. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the book's so, got so many amazing stories that I just think it is such a incredible read and gives an insight in this band that, you know, like, obviously I thought I knew it, but to hear it all laid out and to see it all laid out is, is fascinating. And that's what we're talking about this you know, the, the Springer Al relationship. And it's an important part of the story. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, I'm glad, you know, kind of glad, I guess, I don't know if I'm glad it came up, but uh, it's, uh, it is fundamental in the story, you know, because like from the beginning to the end, you know, uh, we were always trying to work on our relationship and try to, you know, I mean, I you know, clearly he probably sees this, you know, what I'm saying about him, he says the same, you know, probably has the same views on me that I'm the guy that's, you know, ruined his fun or stomped out all the fun he wanted to have, you know, He's a guy that looks at, you know, there's, there's other people in the scene too, that everything has to be fun. You know, the goal in life is to seek fun. You know, I don't look at life that way. Life to me is about getting things done, 
Okay, checking the li- checking the boxes on things and getting things done. So I, if it's fun along the way, that's great. But I don't see things as fun. You know, we have a song on the record. I think fun to you. You know, it's yeah. really about that whole thing. You know, uh, so that's a fundamental difference in our views. You know, he sought fun. Everything he did in life was seeking fun. He you know killed rats, uh, you know, with rocks or whatever because he wanted to have fun. You know, I don't look at it that way. You know, to me, I look at life as getting things done you know yeah that's the way you look at life that i find you know last time we talked you know i don't know if you've come back to it since um dealing with the health issues you've been dealing with but like you you were talking about how conflicted you were about smoking cannabis and to me it was it was just like well not why not just do it but you still you know are, are you have this code that you live by and to break this code it hurts you well, I, I, you know, it's it's a good subject to bring up because, you know, it's just, uh, it's not even about like, uh, you know, I don't consider like I, I set these rules and I have to follow these rules and this and that. Fundamentally, I don't think putting any smoke in my lungs is healthy. Okay. That's just on principle alone. Okay. Uh, I, I question, I question, you know, the, some of the things in the edibles, like what are they putting in that? So I, I just have a lot of concerns about what they're putting in it. Now, the plant, I think, is, you know, a miraculous thing. This plant grows from the seed and it forms this thing and it and it creates a, a thing, a medicine that that is probably better than a lot of the medicines the pharmaceuticals have created. So I believe in the in the plant, you know, I'm not saying I don't believe in the plant. I just have you know a lot of issues about uh, how it enters the body and, you know, is it the best way? And, you know, even I tell you, even, you know, I got I got cancer since I've last spoke to you. You know, first thing in my mind is, man, I wonder if this, you know, a lot of people think that marijuana or medical marijuana or whatever, uh, you know, is good to treat cancer or whatever and stuff like that. I was thinking, man, did this give me cancer or something? You know, I mean, that was my first thoughts because, you know, that's really one of the biggest things that, uh, that you know, kind of uh, changed them since like 2015 or 16 when Massachusetts, uh, 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 what do you call it? Uh, created the licensing program for medical marijuana. I mean, it, w- it wasn't until that before I tried it. And uh, I, I, I don't want to, you know, let's just say this. I believe in straight edge more than anything I've ever believed in. Okay. Uh, I think, you know, I wouldn't want to be 19 years old and, and smoking weed. I got to admit it. Okay. I don't think it would have, you know, might've dulled me to not want to get things done. You know, uh, I don't know. Uh, I think, the, the the 60 year old guy i think the plant you know provides a lot of uh thing a lot of uh a lot of medicinal qualities that, that like i said a lot of pharmaceuticals don't don't uh, deliver so you know i'm in and out on the whole thing like right now i'm out on it <laughs> i was in on it while i was going through chemo you know so uh you know i probably think that's the way it'll always be with me is that i'm torn not because like i said of these rules and things just about everything surrounding it you know uh, if I could like, if that bud that grew on the plant, if I somehow just swallowed it or something and it went in my body and I didn't have these questions and maybe I'd feel better about it, you know, but I just, I, I have a lot, you know, just the whole, even the vape cartridges, man, I think about the vape cartridges and what's going in my, you know, so it's just a lot of unknowns known, uh, I don't know. You must have the same questions. I would imagine. Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. And I think it's, it's one of those sad things where, like you're saying, the plant is one of the first plants humans cultivated you, you can tell the history of humanity through this plant in a lot of ways um but at the same time 
greed and what are people putting in those hot dog carts, uh, those vape carts, they call them up here because you can put filler in them. You can put all sorts of stuff, but you know, I do think that like there, and I'm as I'm like the Ian Mackay level of zealous, uh, or I'm, I'm sorry, I'm the, I'm the owl level of zealous when it comes to cannabis in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of straight edge, I guess, like, but because I came to it after being straight edge, you know, I was, broke when I was 30 and started smoking and there are ways that you can consume it that don't involve smoking. And we can, we can talk about this off air because yeah, it's yeah, a yeah. whole other thing, but it is a plant that you're like, you're right in saying like a lot of people find a lot of therapeutic benefits from it. I got off my anti-anxiety pills. Like it changed my life getting onto it. And it's just, but I think it speaks to how important straight edge is uh, not just to, to you, but to everyone. Like I know a lot of people that, were this fraught or I've like, when I broke straight edge at 30, when I sold out, I lost friends over it. People that were like, no, I don't want to fuck with you anymore because it's that important to people. And in a lot of ways it's cause of you, you know, you're like the original, you know, like the original apostle. Of I, I do edge. consider, yeah, that's a good way to put it. I do consider myself a messenger in many sense, you know, like, uh, I was, I was, you know, drifting towards, uh, that direction when I met the DC guys. And then when I, when I, when I saw the strength of what these guys, you know, represented, uh, I, I found more, more strength from it, you know? So, uh, I felt, I felt that, you know, I was already heading that direction. Uh, there was a, there was a word now that I could kind of rally around. And if you, if you look at my, uh, if you look at SSD and everything, you can see I'm a, I'm a tagline guy, you know, like I'm probably like, you know, if I wasn't an engineer, I'd probably be, in, mar- in marketing or something, I, I love creating kind of like taglines and kind of campaigns and stuff, you know. Uh, so straight edge, I was like, I wish I came up with that one. You know, I missed that's the one I missed, you know, as far as the tagline. It's <laughs> a great tagline, you know. And and I, I you know, uh, so I don't know where I'm going with this thing. But anyways, I, 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 I really, uh, in many ways, it probably saved my life in a sense, you know, because I, I probably... Uh, probably was out of control, you know, at some point along the way, you know? So I think, I think straight edge just gave me a foundation to save my life, but I definitely don't look at it as like a set of rules. I think, and as, as like I said, the six year old guy, I think, I think it's an evolving story, you know? So it's, it's hard to like, just get all locked in and say, I'm this, I'm that, I'm the whatever, you know, uh, you know, message of straight edge to me was a message to the kids, you know, in high school and stuff, you know, you don't have to just go along with the crowd, you know? So, does that message necessarily apply to a 50 year old? You know, it does probably in a way, but it really, my message was more towards the person like just coming up for the first time, you know, through, through the ranks, you know, like, like after that, they can make, you know, like make your decisions on your own. I just wanted to help them give them some, like, uh, you know, two, uh, a couple of different things on the ballot, you know, so to speak, which weren't on the ballot when I grew up, you know? So that, that's kind of, was my view of straight edge. It was always about a choice, you know? Uh, I'm the, I'm the messenger of choice, you know, just trying to tell people that, you know, you just don't have to go along with the crowd, which, I mean, they were saying when I was, uh, young, the same, they were saying that stuff, oh, I don't go along with the crowd, but you inadvertently go along with the crowd eventually, you know, because, you know, you don't want to be locked in your room by yourself, you know, you, you kind of want to have friends, you know, so it's an unfortunate thing growing up and it's not easy growing up, you know, but, uh, that's my view on straight edge. What was, what was your take on it when it showed up in Philadelphia in that kind of way, Nancy? Because like, 
you know, at least from the outsider, it seems like it never really catches on until much later in Philadelphia as like any sort yeah. of thing. I mean, when I met Al, all my friends and, you know, we started dating, all my friends were like, you're going to be straight edge now. You're going to be straight edge now. And I drank. I did. I never did anything else. That's, you know, I like to have a cocktail or two, you know, I, and, gets, and get silly. I was never a druggy or, or anything else. So. The best story of the book is definitely the best line in the book is when you're like, meet Al for the first time. And he's like, yeah, he asked me if I smoke. I flicked the cigarette in the gutter and said, not anymore. <laughs> yeah, that was it. I mean, I was like a, a social smoker. I yeah. was nervous. And so I would have a cigarette and stuff. So um, when I first, you know, before I knew of Al, it was when SOA and Black Flag played the ill-fated Kensington show. And we knew that those guys were straight edge and we were, we were distrustful of it. <laughs> we didn't, we thought it was um, going to be preachy and holier than thou and things like that. And we learned very quickly that it wasn't, it was more like what Al said, um, the choice. And so when I met Al, you know, and people said, are you going to be straight edge? It wasn't a requirement for Al that I want, that I would be, but because I respected him, I decided that I and and he didn't drink. So it wasn't like you're going out on Friday nights and drink. So I just stopped. And then we started going to the gym and um, lifting weights, which at the time, not many women did at all. There were no women lifting weights. And I found that super empower, so empowering that, to be able to lose weight and get strong and do these things that other people weren't doing. And we did it together and it was great. I mean, I had parents that met me um, in school when I had their kids on parent teacher conference saying, you're that woman that used to work out at the gym. And I always wished I had a girl that worked out with me. And so that was, um, that was really a fun thing for me to do. And it, and it sort of made me see that there was a, a much healthier way to live. And I really kind of um, clamored to it really. And to this day, I don't really, I don't do anything. <laughs> no, yeah. I don't go, I don't say, Oh, I'm straight edge or whatever. I, um, if I was at a wedding or something and had a glass of champagne and a toast, that would be something, but it's just not anything after 1982 that I found interesting. It, you know, the, the the messaging behind straight edge is just she said she didn't go around saying straight but i mean it's, that, that that was like the pride thing you know you just want to those kids give them a little extra pride you know to like say that you know i'm straight edge but you know that's not for everyone to go around and advertise that but i find it interesting that a lot of people have gone through you know the 12-step program and everything that they never say anything like you know they shy you know i'm sober this that but you know like they should say this straight edge i mean it's just it's just it's just what does it say? Straight edge. It means that you're now straight. You know, you you're bet you're a little bit better than you were before. You know, so I don't know. People shy away from that message or something, but I think it's a it's a great. You know, I think it's better than saying you're sober. Personally, you know, uh, just from from uh, you know uh, uh, pure marketing standpoint, you know, it's the same result, right? I mean, to say, you know, so I mean, I I I, I prefer you know I prefer straight edge as the term, you know. But I I know a lot of people that came through. Not a lot, but I know a few people, sorry, that came through um, 12 step or found sobriety in some way and now claim straight edge. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it is something that, you know, a lot of people find a lot of strength 
through claiming. You know, I certainly did as a yeah. young person. Like, I think that's the thing is like in DC, and we might even talked about this so uh, last time. So at the risk of repeating myself, but like, I think in DC, it was, you know, obviously Ian is Ian, and like he's got a massive importance. We could talk about it separately, but like, but I think Straight Edge was more just like a kind of a, a result of function you know like they couldn't get into these shows they put x's on their hands you know and it became like a thing they kind of like identified with or talked about henry told you about type thing but in boston that's when it becomes a movement and that's where like you know you're saying nancy like that's where like that's where this sort of like lifestyle thing with being straight edge goes in the same way that i was talked about last time ssd to me is like one of the probably the first hardcore band because you weren't being influenced by punk in the way that you're being influenced by hardcore. And you're sort of the, you're the first straight edge band because with minor threat, it never seems like you say in the book a lot. And, you know, certainly from when I've talked to Ian, as much as he is straight edge and, and still is straight edge, he, de he doesn't really claim it in the same way and didn't really imbue it with that sense of you are proud because of this X on your hand, which fuck Avril Lavigne is, talking about straight edge when she first comes out and has x's on her hands like that's how cm punk like that's how big this thing got yeah i'm i'm, I'm i mean i did have uh you know i i don't know if i i think i told nancy but i mean i i said to myself you know just just keep on going with it because you know all it takes is one person and then one person tells another person another person tells a person so i mean i had a vision that maybe it, i'm not like you know not like crazy huge but i you know at the time i was like just 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 do the message you know and see where it goes you know but i mean i had hopes and, and the first real feedback i got was when i when i heard about the youth of today thing you know and i was like damn i go this is how it, i mean i would be sinister like a test tube guy again but but this is how i saw it going you know i was like you know this is how it could go and it, it went that way and i give give youth of today a lot of credit because you know someone had to take that next that next step with it, you know, like, I mean, I can only do what my messaging can do. And someone had to take that next step and they did. Now, of course, then the vegan thing became part of it, which I never really saw in a million years, you know, I mean, I knew Ian and stuff was uh, vegan when my threat came to town and everything, but I never thought that would be like lumped in with straight, straight edge, you know, like, I mean, I, I never saw it becoming like all of a sudden this like super pure lifestyle thing, you know, to me, it was about your band's called fucked up. It was about getting fucked up or not, really. You know, that, that's really what it's about. You know, that's, that's what straight edge was, you know, in my view, you know. I was a straight edge Al disciple back when we picked that name for the band. And so was Mike from <laughs> fucked up. And so was, uh, actually, I, 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 Sandy never was definitely. And, and, but, you know, yeah, it was like straight edge was a huge part of, you know, what Mike and I got together over, you know, and it's, it spreads really quickly kind of around the world, like alarm in the Netherlands or uh, Serat Miliat in uh, I think it's Finland, you know, are talking about straight edge. Like there's this sort of, uh, and now it obviously is a global movement and it's, it's interesting. It's really kind of, and like you were saying, Nancy, it's obviously it gets criticized a lot, you know, and straight edge means I'm better than you. And certainly with that hardline militancy stuff that comes in later on. But I read that history of hardline book that came out and it was, interesting as as problematic as a lot of the shit with hardline is acknowledging all that but like it was interesting hearing women talk about the empowerment they got from straight edge um and just how different it was from the dudes talking about it and just sort of like i don't know it was, it was just a very kind of like it gave me a like a slightly different perspective on straight edge but even hardline slightly 
Yeah, I mean, it, it really kind of changed my life in a lot of ways if I would sit down and meta-analyze everything. Um, you know, I lose weight, I get strong, I go back to school, I get a degree, like all these things start happening. And and was it because of straight edge? I think it was. Mm-hmm. So um, who's to say, I guess. But for me as a woman, I found it very, very fulfilling and empowering. And it helped me achieve goals in my life that I didn't really think possible. I don't think that I could have um, done the things that I've done. All right, put well, that down. <laughs> we she, wrote this, she wrote this book. I mean, I saw her, I saw Nancy work and work and work. You know, it's very, there's a lot of iterations of of where her first book was going to be. And, and she was stuck with it. You know, like, I mean, she never gave up on her dream and you know it's really it was still a lot it was said. still easier than that that writing that one was still easier than doing this one. <laughs> <laughs> less editors involved probably on your own book i imagine <laughs> yeah well that you know it, it all started from the instagram page really this um how much art can you take book um i wanted al to see the legacy um, that he had in the world. So I asked him if I c- could create an Instagram page, but to make it authentic, to make sure that because I'm not a band member, I would only include stories from the band or um, from people close to the band talking about the band. And so I didn't know anything about Instagram when I started and we were lucky we had a great cache of of photos. And so I'd post a photo and tell a story. And I'm lucky I work with Jamie. Jamie's an English teacher at my school. And so in boring meetings, he would tell me these hilarious stories and I would be like typing them into my computer. And the whole Instagram page just really took off. And people said, this should be a book. This should be a book. And I was like, you know what? It should be a book. And that's really how it became a book. Um, Doing it, it was hard with Phil because Phil doesn't even own a a computer. So getting photos from Phil was, was, you know, very difficult. Um, Al didn't, no one got involved. No one got involved until. Because of my medical situation, I didn't get involved. And Nancy was running with the baton. I only got involved at the very end where it seemed like it was, it was struggling a little bit. So, but Nancy is all the credit for getting this book out, you know, like, I mean, and. The book, the book is the important step because the book, you know, precedes the trust records, which are coming out in November and everything. So, uh, anyway, it's just a huge accomplishment. You know, she, I owe, uh, you know, I owe her everything to get this book out. You know, it, 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 it was hard too, because it was, does it become a book where I interview all these people about what SSD meant to them, um, get their stories or does it just stay insular? And and I chose really to, to keep it with just band members and crew, people close to them and Pusshead and Mr. B. That, that was really it. Um, and I think that that kept it tight and, and that's kind of what I wanted to do. I, I didn't want it to be just all these people talking about SSD, but, that's, you know, sometimes I look at it and I think, geez, maybe I should have asked this person <laughs> something or why didn't I include, um, afterwards I thought about Bridget, who was really Bridget uh, Burpee Collins, who helped Al with the cover layout they worked together on. And I said, well, I should have really gotten her perspective on it. And, um, you know, I guess you could second guess yourself till the cows come home. 
Yeah, like it is. It obviously it could go on forever, right? Like right. But yeah, I think what is there is a pretty complete picture of everything, you know. And like I think the Mister B being in there, I thought was super awesome. You know, rest in peace to this person who had like an unbelievably huge impact on on all music and stuff. And to hear his thoughts on it because he's like kind of like I think a bridge between the two different Boston scenes you know and there's not uh very many of those like actually i was gonna ask did you like sickness al sickness larry lasad sickness yeah the, yeah the sickness I, I i like all you know i like all those bands you know they were very i mean i could say they you know that was when i the how much odd thing you know there was like a heavily odd influence of course larry the, that their band being a little bit more on the uh i don't know uh crazy side of it but uh but well, that's yeah, that's I, a song where i hear it is, is how much art yeah yeah like uh so yeah i i i i am open to really anything i have a very uh like i used to before we played in those art galleries i used to go to those art galleries and attend a lot of that music i can't say it's like my go-to music i'm not gonna go home and put the sickness on uh you know and uh relax <laughs> but uh i don't put the ssd on to go home and relax too either you know but uh uh yeah so that's the sickness. I mean, they're a very visual band too. You know, I think it's hard just to think of the sickness as a as a uh, audio thing. And they they were visual. You know, very visual. I wish I saw the visuals because I love the audio. That is my relaxation music. But so is SSD. Is so, it? Oh gosh, yeah. Like I love okay vibing out. But maybe the cannabis helps with that. Mind you, I did that before <laughs> the cannabis. So yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, it when um, like I did like going back to philadelphia did it affect uh philadelphia because like the thing that i find really interesting and, and this comes in america's hardcore henry talks about it like those guys go on that trip as the teen idols out to the west coast they go to that circle jerk show they see american hardcore kind of like on the west coast in its infancy and this sort of like militancy and the the gang kind of stuff and the kids wearing these boots and they bring that back and they bring that to dc and then obviously that spreads to Boston and then there's those legendary New York kind of incursions where Boston and DC go to New York. And then eventually the New York kids get super hard. And that sort of like seems to be the birth of like the hardness of hardcore, but Philadelphia, it feels like, you know, there were hard bands and, and circle of shit and all sorts of like, you know, why die and stuff. But at the same times, it feels like it was much more kind of like a punkier open kind of scene, certainly aesthetically. Um yeah, with with maybe with the bands that were um, we had bands like S.O.D. that were kind of uh, really fast, thrashy, uh, surfy kind of music. Why Die, Sadistic Exploits were probably more in, into the punk thing. But as the bands came through, everybody played in Philadelphia, Bad Brains, Black Flag, S.S.D., Minor Threat. And so that was embraced. The, the hardcore aesthetic was definitely embraced by Philadelphia. Um, I can't really tell you the straight edge impact because I think I left before it really, if, if it took off there at all, I do know that I lost some people, some friends to drugs um, who were my friends be, um, back in the day. And so that always made me sad because drugs weren't really part of the scene um, that I was involved in in Philadelphia, but in Philadelphia, you read my book, like, we're just trying to keep alive in there. You know, we're just yeah. trying to 
not have bombs thrown at us, not have riots, not have the cops arrest us, not have cops sick dogs on us. And so it was a, a completely different vibe than Boston, which is clean and safe and college. And so I feel like Philly was raw and real and hard in a completely different way than it was in Boston or DC or um, even New York. I mean, we have, I think, more in common with New York than we do with Boston or DC, which were sort of wealthier areas and stuff. So we were just really trying to um, have fun, stay alive, and see some good music. Yeah, when, when you tour around the country, do you see differences now, or do you see it more generic? Kind of every all the scenes are the same. It's funny because I talk about this people all the time. Like I feel like the the open sharing of information has really flattened a lot of the differences between scenes. Like you know, it's not as you know, and I'm not as involved as kids are, so I shouldn't pretend like I have like my finger on the pulse. But I do feel mm -hmm. like it's a lot more of sort of like a global hardcore scene at this point than regional sort of identifiers yeah. you know in the same way like texas is so different texas hardcore austin specifically like the way it's taken up there couldn't be further from the way it's taken up in boston and detroit it's completely different you know and i find it interesting how all these bands you know like the misfits didn't do well in detroit but or didn't do well in detroit didn't. oh yeah that was that place yeah. yeah but didn't do well in dc you know right. and i find like that sort of like you know there's a lot more kind of like differences like you're talking about nancy there is similarities between new york and philadelphia i see it but it doesn't seem to have yeah philly seems to have gone with it more than new york or there doesn't seem to be as much acrimony that's talked about within the scene you know from people fighting at shows like i guess also maybe it's just the new york and Boston. yeah we never had our threats our threats were never from within they were always from cops and locals and so that made us very protective of one another i read a um I posted some, I post a lot in, in punk rock groups, Facebook groups, and I told a story um, and posted some photos of a block party that we did. And the cops came in and just started smashing everybody with, you know, sticks and arresting people and cracking heads right and left. And it, I was lucky I ran. <laughs> that was my number one defense mechanism was just to run. And a kid, uh, a guy wrote, it wasn't a kid, he, a guy wrote, oh, in Detroit, we controlled the cops. We were sitting in front of a show and we threw a, a beer bottle smashed on a, uh, a cop car. And then the cops told us, you have a choice, go inside the venue or we'll arrest you. If that was in Philly, we would be dead. And yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not exaggerating at all. They would have shot us and killed us and we would be dead. There was no, Philadelphia cops were not going to give us a choice on what to do. And so those were the regional differences that I saw. Um, and so it was kind of different to come up to Boston where shows were at five o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> it was just, you know, very weird. But I did kind of like the fact that I could go to a show and not end up in the emergency room or not end up with a black eye and or not end up worrying about ending up in jail or anything like that. So uh, I appreciated that. Um, Philly's a Philly's a unique place. I, I, I love it so much. I want him to move back but i don't know if i can convince them it's it's uh it's much cheaper to live there and the weather's better than here so but i don't know i got health issues he's got health issues better pizza they have, yeah they have better why? Pizza. Whoa, 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 whoa. who's got better pizza <laughs> philadelphia. Philadelphia. Oh, philadelphia. Philadelphia. Oh, philadelphia. Really? 
I love that Philadelphia baking sheet pizza that they do. Oh, I like, like that too. But you so the tomato good. pie. The tomato <laughs> pie, exactly. The corpolis. I love it too. I can eat one of those the whole thing by myself. One Sa- of those same. I make that. That's my go-to at home with the kids when I make pizzas. I do Philadelphia style pizzas. So that's awesome. I, I I am partial, but uh, you know I don't even... think that's. I, I don't know, <laughs> you, Nancy. Do you think that's for, Philadelphia style pizza, tomato. Pie I mean, thing? tomato yeah. pie is an. I think it's an. Option. I think that the lack of cheese might be a Philadelphia thing, but that bakery pizza has been here my whole life in Boston. Some, you know, some places put more cheese on, less cheese. Some places just put a little Parmesan cheese on, no mozzarella. So it's been here too. But I give Philly the credit as far as put a slab of dough and just a bunch of tomato sauce on there. <laughs> No hint of cheese, and I like it. It's got you know, a little so. hint of cheese. It's got a little, a little yeah, hint. Yeah, little or hint. the other thing they do at like some of the places, like I know Pika's, um, and there's like a bunch of like places that do this where they put the cheese on the dough, bake it, and then top that, and then bake oh. it again. Again, that's and pizza hot. I thought did that. Uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> come on, come on. No, then pizza put the put the cheese on the dough for us or something. I, I don't think cheese, so. They put the cheese in the um in the edges in, in the, in the dough crust in the crust in the crust yeah. cheese yeah. cheesy yeah. crust. Pizza, I I yeah. never eat that stuff, so I don't. Know. Yeah, so, right. <laughs> well, no, same here. I've never. never <laughs> I like tomato. I I tomato. I think is the key. Like you take away the tomato sauce, I don't think I like it. You know. So. I got this weird adult onset allergy to nightshades that I've been picking up, where I get indigestion now when I eat tomatoes eggplants or potatoes oh. weirdly because they're really? a nightshade apparently yeah and it's it sucks, it sucks how do you get so. rid of that What's- uh and acids you know oh. afterwards and just suffer through sometimes like in agony but you know it's, I yeah i love tomatoes and we we planted a bunch of tomatoes out back here and i can't eat them the way i used to where i get sick as well yeah <laughs> so, bumps me out it totally bumps me out because i love homegrown tomatoes that's in my genes yeah same here and it's like uh I don't know, getting older. It's, it's one of the realities, yeah, it stinks. Right? Always something. <laughs> well, back to younger, funner days. I thought one of the, uh, I don't know if it was in the book or somewhere else I read, but I was in, seeing uh, Jack Kelly was talking about the how you got kind of recruited him to being into the hardcore thing because you saw him walking down the street with a shaved head and pulled over and you're listening to Disorder in the car. And I found that interesting how there's sort of like, especially when the Boston crew begins to form, that there is this sort of um i don't know this thing that kind of becomes a big part of hardcore and a big part of straight edge too is this cruise and you know there's dc kids and the georgetown kids and the you know the antics of the georgetown kids but fewer talked about in the same way boston crew is like that seems to be the birth of sort of an organized crew in hardcore on the east coast at least yeah i I never you know a lot of people i guess yeah i you know i uh I, i started uh during the pandemic and when I was thinking about possibly releasing these records and kind of doing this uh, kind of celebration of the band kind of thing, you know, I, st- I just I started uh, selling a lot of merch, you know, designing merch and putting merch out there. And and Boston, Boston Crew was always a big part. And I was like, man, should I should I make Boston Crew hats and things like that? You know, because in the back of my mind, I wonder if people going to think, well, it's just celebrating a gang or something, you know. But I, I never looked at it as a gang. I got to admit. Now, other people can view it that way. But I never did. You know, like, I mean. We didn't have any uh, church meetings to discuss what we were going to do. Uh, you know, we just we just enjoyed each other's company. You know, and we and it was a it was a you know we were celebrating music really. You know, that's why we were together. So I don't know if there's a music gangs. You know, like you want uh, you know like the 
if that's where we started music gangs or whatever, then maybe, but, but it was not, what well, certainly wasn't the kind of thing like a gang, you know, like those later day gangs, I think, you know, like we didn't have that kind of seriousness, you know, uh, but we weren't trying to make money or anything, you know, I guess. Yeah. Like, I, I, I think that aspect of it, you're like, I've never heard that about shaking people down or anything. Yeah. 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 But, but I wasn't saying you did. I'm just saying, I was just wondering if that was the evolution. You know, we didn't, we weren't trying to stock gangs is all I'm trying to say, you know? But that being said, like it's it's it, it happened, something, right? but well, no, but it's also like I find people's perspectives that are in something versus people perceiving it from the outside are so different. Like there's almost like this Rashomon uh, effect that kind of happens. Like it's interesting talking to people in Boston that were scared of you guys, intimidated by you guys, and I don't think, as you're saying, you, that wasn't your intention, but there's there's intentions, and then there's the way people perceive things or, or the results on other people. I've gotten into, you know, arguments about people that say, like, oh, yeah, um, um, here's what they used to do. And I could I could probably even find I think I screenshot one of them where um, a guy got into an argument with me about what um, Boston crew did. Um, I probably won't be able to find it this quickly. But, um, I, you know, I was kind of I was kind of shocked um, knocking beers out of the hands or, or yeah, the whole like knocking. Yeah. Like, well, you know, we're going to come and, you know, we'll just kill you all. And, and I'm like, uh, oh, here we go. Uh, let's break down what the Boston crew would do to outsiders who would attend your shows. Shall we? Yet if somebody drank a beer at one of your shows, then you would tell the entire crowd to act on them. Sure. Doesn't support. <laughs> sure. You know, I, and I'm like, where do they, you know, and I know that the mythology and, and people just, you know, they sort of perpetuated it because because and and let it run. Um, but that just never happened. It never happened at, at any show that I was ever at for SSD. And I was at a lot of them. Um, so it's just this there is this perception that if somebody was doing something that they just came and killed you and that was it. It just didn't happen. Well, I, I think we, 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 we I think we didn't mean chaos. Sorry. No, it's just complete mythology. It's just complete I, mythology. I feel with like uh, people, we we tend to mythologize and romanticize violence in our culture. Like, look at murder podcasts or or, or Netflix series about deaths and things like that. And and uh, you know that certainly happens with this. And you know, and I like that's why I view this stuff with certainly two minds because at the same time, as a young person, hearing these stories where you're dealing with asshole fucking drunk jocks that parties or shows or just assholes on the streets who are wasted and you're like fuck how sick would it be if we had enough of us where we could like knock the beer out of their hands or you know there was another story which i've never heard your name thrown attached to this also but the the boston crew would go outside of a frat house and throw a brick through the window and wait for the frat kids to come outside and just fight all the dudes frat dudes and like all these where did stories. that ever happen i don't Who know did that? <laughs> i don't know i've heard some several different names attached to that story and that legend and it gets romanticized and it becomes yeah. part of this cultural thing and it's it's weird how you know, not to overstate the importance of hardcore. That's a taker. That's a take of lighting the bag of poop on fire and then having people run out or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but like fighting the people because they're wasted jocks at a frat house, and it. But it it becomes this is like religion for people. Like people like. I mean, that that added that, that into like the folklore of the thing. You're saying. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, yeah. like you know, like as you are the original apostle, I think Ian in a way 
like I had uh, David Bazan on from uh, Pedro the Lion, and he was raised Christian, and he talked about you know, and I don't want to twist his words too much here, but like he was talking about how Ian Mackay, in a lot of ways, serves the same sort of purpose for him as a hardcore kid, as a punk kid, as religion used to, where it provides you with a moral code. You know, it's based on someone you've never met and you adhere to this stuff. Like, you know, if you sign to a major label, you're a sellout. And that's because some guy who I've never met wrote a record in his 20s that told me this. Or maybe he even didn't write it in a record. Maybe it's just because of like, you know, something he said in an interview or because. Can I jump in a second? I want yeah, to jump please. in there. Sorry, but you said about a major label, right? Okay. Yeah. Now. You're saying that because the you know the time major labels like the ultimate sin probably right. It was considered like pretty yeah like it was well Jello got his legs broken over it. People were getting like who got the legs out. broken? Jello got attacked at the Gilman because he did a record with Mojo Nixon and because Mojo Nixon had some major label distribution thing. Really, some punk dude. According to the the story that's been you know because, I never asked Jello it, about it though. It's an important subject because uh, you know when you consider. You know, Exclaim was one of the, you know, like an original independent label. When, when all these independent labels forming and stuff, you know, and you had major labels and stuff. The way I view it is it, some people do it better than others, okay? If a major label, uh, what's the job of a of a, rec, of a major label or any label is to produce a record and, and get it out there so that people uh, listen to it and then eventually buy it, right? So as a band member... Kind of that's what you, I mean, at least that's what we we would want is uh, for our record to get out there, okay? I mean, that's that's the goal and to be treated fairly by a label. But if you look at now this whole independent, because there's a million record labels out there, right? And really what I see to the case is that, you know, it, some people do it better than others, you know? Some people don't do it that well. And I don't think it's about independent, uh, major, minor, whatever. It's just about the people that you're dealing with, you know? And if you're dealing with reputable people, there's major labels, I'm sure. I mean, I don't have an experience, but I'm not defending them. But I'm sure there's people that are very reputable, do their job well, come in the work every day. Uh, maybe they, you know, they don't have crazy overhead, just people sitting around doing nothing. And, uh, you know, your record, you end up, uh, you're, you're tra they're transparent with you. You get a good accounting. And then there's people that are, you know, just because you're on an independent or, or uh, label, another, many times none of that stuff happens. It's just a continuation of a, of a bad situation. You know, there's tons of bad independence out there. I'd, I'd say there's very few examples of, of an independent or a, who did it well, you know, and does it honorably, transparently, and all the things I said. And I'm going to get to Tang right now. You know, I trusted Curtis Casella with my power record, uh, 1990. You know, we uh, vinyl had just been phased out. CDs were coming on, on board. And I saw a big transition in the stores, and I didn't understand it. I hadn't had a CD player yet. But I knew that, you know, I didn't want our band to go just like fizzle out with vinyl. And at that time, that's what I thought was happening. So I, I uh, you know, I, I considered my options. You know, does X claim want to get back into the game, put a record out? You know, I had I had two somewhat bad experiences on record three and four with SSD with uh, so-called independent labels, you know, Dutch East India and uh, Modern Method, which, you know, they weren't mages, but they're just people you know and those people didn't do a good job at what they did you know they didn't do a good job at anything modern method i mean as much as i like the two guys they did a terrible job owning a record label you know they did great uh Newbury comics the store but they were terrible uh with their records okay uh 
Dutch East India. I mean, I can't even talk about that. No one, that, that's a whole story in itself, you know, it's a documentary like, waiting right there. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, so, so, so the notion that a major label is evil and independence are great is a bunch of bullshit. Okay. And I want to come on and say it because I'll tell you right now, when I signed up for trust and I don't know how it's going to end up with trust. Okay. I, right now, Joe Nelson, everything's going great. Okay. But I mean, I'm not naive either. Okay. There might be a day that I, I say, wow, look what happened, you know, because when you get involved in a label, you know, you have to have a good relationship. It's going to go back and forth. And uh, so putting together uh, the trust records, I need to get my master's. Okay. Now, Curtis, uh, through Mr. B and Luigi Adano, got my master tapes to produce power. I elected at the time that I not get involved. My biggest mistake. Okay. I just didn't want to put my imprint on this power record. I told Curtis the songs we're going to put on it and stuff, but, but I didn't want to get involved. I should have gotten involved. Anyways, they, they made the record. They put it out. Many years later, I asked where the tapes were, and people told me Curtis had them. So I asked Curtis, I said, can I get the tapes back? I had just gotten to Pro Tools, and I wanted to digitize them, okay? He sent me a bunch of tapes back. I got the tapes back. I looked at them like, this is the tapes, you know? But I didn't have any reel-to-reel machines to go back and ID what was on these actual tapes. I just looked at them like, wow, this is then the tapes sat in my mother's basement and got water damaged. OK, and they almost like were destroyed. OK, so putting together his trust records, I give Joe Nelson those tapes. He goes and restores them. The guy, you know, takes the tapes off the reels and is like cleaning them by hand. You know, the 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 mylar or whatever it is, you know, that's how literally we went to. And it turns out all these tapes were like demos from Radio Beat. They were like worthless tapes, okay? Happened to be on one of the tapes, it was something called safety copy, kids will have to say. So somehow we lucked out that we found a safety copy mixed in with these tapes that allowed us to, uh, to put out kids will have to say. If it wasn't for that pure, I'm sure, accident of that safety being involved, because it's not the master, it's not the real master, um, we- uh, Curtis, we probably, Curtis refuses to give that back. So right now, Kurt, I know he's got the tapes because number one, he back. had the demos. He never should have had those demos. Of anything, he never should have had those. The fact that he had those returned to me tells me he's got all the other tapes, okay? But right now, he refuses to do it. He's basically holding me hostage. And you want to talk about a bad person in independent music? It's Tang, okay? And I hope whoever listens to this podcast, if they ever want to do any dealings with them, and I don't know if you've had dealings with them, but I'm telling you, the guy's a, a fucking asshole. The guy is a fucking crook, okay? Uh, and, uh, and it's really sad because we did consider him a friend at one point. He was life. a friend. You know, this is a it's, friend. It's completely disappointing. Really I, gave disappointing. Him the rec- I gave him the power record because he was a friend. He's the one person I've asked. I've been asked a million times to put these records out, okay? I trusted him. To this, uh, the launch into CD, you know, and we had a very uh, different contract than most people. And, um, you know, the bottom line is he's he's just really screwed us, you know. And uh, I think it's a message there. Don't just you know, sign up with some independent, you think life is going to be good. You know, you have to look, actually look at these people and understand who they are. Don't don't care if it's major independent or any stuff. Just try to figure out who you're dealing with and talk to some of the band's you know, I, I got to the trust people through Chris uh, Keith Mars from Circle Jerks, who would, you know, it, the label had just started out. So, I mean, but uh, I, I liked what I heard from Keith. So, you know, that's how I, I, I and I had talked to many other labels. You know, I talked to uh, Gerard Cosley's, you know, wanted to re-release the record on uh, Matador, you know, which I considered, you know, 
kind of a big label. Like, I don't know what was Matador. Would you consider him an independent or made? It would have made us label be? mates, Al, in a way. Are you on Matador? <laughs> we were. Okay. We were. Anyways, uh, I'm still friends with Gerard. There's some other people. Yeah, I, I'm still friends to. with Gerard too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because that's funny, because when he was on the show recently, he questioned whether or not you regretted saving his life when the Circle Jerks tried to run him over. I don't regret anything. Okay, good. Because yeah, he's like, I don't know if Al would regret saving my yeah. life. Anyways, I just wanted to tell that story about, because right now, I want my tapes back, okay? Yeah. He's still, you know, this is right now, you know, I want my tapes back, they're my tapes. He has no, you know, you could get into dispute with other, you know, whether a label owns the tapes, but he had no rights to these tapes, okay? So... Well, it's and it's a. I think that's the thing about your band is there's such a purity to it because you're self-releasing these records. You're like, you know, and that's and that's what it comes down to. Like, not to go back to the religious thing, but there's like this chasteness that I think when, you know, the major label thing specifically, when people get involved with this thing, you know, when you look at it, you're like, oh no, it's no, it's like interfered with, you know, and there's sort of this adherence to like what keeps. You know, it's like like it's like religion in the same way. It's like sort of this invisible set of rules. Like, what would make a band real or not? Like, now they call them they don't call them sellouts anymore. They call them industry plants. But it's the same sort of charge that gets lopped at a band if they're looked at as being careerist or doing hardcore for any other reason than pursuing hardcore. Because, like you said, it's this weird. Why isn't it just about finding people that do it well? You know, do their job well. That's what I like. You know, I I, I look at anyone like if I see a guy picking up trash if he does his job well i i look at him and say this guy's pretty good but you never did ssd to make money you know that's never. really clear right and that's a what money I pit it was but that's the thing <laughs> like that's why you do and that's why you do a hardcore band and that's why you know it's not it's like you should and if it makes money and you wind up becoming a millionaire off it like some people have then more power to you as long as you don't whatever you know i'm, I'm saying we right you but like it's talking to the universal but like but you know if you do break this code and they, like you guys you and ian and and these sorts of people back then and Corey are kind of setting this code of what it means and albini of course talking about it in max rock and roll and the idea of what is and isn't a sellout it's like you pursue this because you love this thing and that's why you do it you don't do it because you're careerist no, I mean, I never consider, you know, certainly money has never been my motivation and everything, you know. I mean, when I do this merchandise, I like, I get more, you know, I like, like writing personal notes at this point. You know, I hate merchandise actually, but at this point, I like writing personal notes and, and giving a lot of free stuff in there. You know, I get, I really like that. You know, I like building a box and throwing in free stuff here and there. You know, of course, it's, you know, I'm also a realist here. I'm, I'm in my 60s. Most of these people are probably in their 50s or 40s. And like a sticker doesn't probably have the impact it did to a kid when he was 13 or 14. So, you know, that's the tragedy is that, you know, like, let's face it, you know, like, like um, our audience is more, you know, if I want to say we have an audience now, but I mean, our, our people that are uh, into, you know, I, I don't know, maybe we can get some young fans from this podcast, but you know, in general, <laughs> our, our audience is very mature, let's say, you know, old. <laughs> yeah. But, but you know, they, it is, and it isn't, it is like, there is like an audience that, you know, like, um, is older obviously like the people that grew up listening to it like myself and many of the listeners of this podcast probably but then there's also this younger generation of kids that keep getting into hardcore and that's the great thing about this thing getting reissued is now it's going to be on streaming services in a way that these kids engage with this music now oh and i think hardcore is bigger than ever but i mean it do, is. do you think that do you think the young kids are going back and checking out the past as much certainly as certainly Other? you know maybe not in the same they're not maybe 
listen to the sickness seven inch like i am or you know sadly maybe sadistic exploits could do with a revival and i really do feel like wide eye is still i can't believe how commander related they are but at the same time like you're part of the canon like there's there's like you know ssd is like fuck chris no like nirvana we're wearing your shirts like that's like something that i was walking through the mall the other day and every second person had a nirvana shirt on and i realized like oh nirvana's like led zeppelin was when i was a kid now like it's like yeah definitely yeah right that ubiquitous right and so you know the the way you're part of you're part of that the thing is most of the kids that are wearing the nirvana and the misfits shirts you know they don't don't even know who they are you know i'll see them in my school a lot and and you know i never want to be that jerk that's like name three songs you know but but i'll, I'll ask out of natural <laughs> yeah. you know out, out of natural curiosity i'll say like the band like the shirt and they'll be like oh like the shirt miss you know and i'll be like okay cool you know like i just sometimes because i'm always hoping to find a hardcore kid at my that, school there's a there's a handful and so, yeah but that's the thing we're here for the hardcores you know and, yeah. and as much as there's going to be like a million kids that buy that shirt and don't check out nirvana there's going to be like one you know or two or maybe maybe a hundred that will be like what what is this what made them tick and dig back and like that's that's the person i was you know that's the person yeah, that's that the person i was well that's the person i was but i agree with you but but it, it, let's face it i mean i don't think i mean i i think it, you know hardcore is big but every generation it's their generation and they want to own their music i think yeah. you know which is the way it should be and you know, it takes that real special person to want to go back and dig, you know, and go. So I, I mean, I hope. I mean, I, I told Nancy uh, when she was making this book that you know that that's really. I mean, not that I don't want my old my friends, older friends, to enjoy the book because they you know they're going to enjoy the 1980s, the visuals, you know, kind of 1980s were more dark and kind of uh, I don't know. They were they weren't as you know. There's been a lot of money invested in since the 80s you know they so, were black and white according yeah. to the book well they yeah <laughs> they match they match the color of the photograph matches yeah how the anyways you know will uh will the young kids go back and check it out i mean i hope that happens that's that's that will really make me happy if someone uh you know a younger person maybe in the 20s goes back and checks the book out you know so. but you know in the same way that maybe it, it's you know i think they will and i think there is because you know it's the first hardcore band in we the, don't have book stands anymore like the book shit like you know no. the old days you'd go in the store and kind of thumb through things so i would see that's how the person might buy the book you know like see it on a stand and kind of thumb through it but i i don't see that part of the all those bookstores don't exist anymore right no i think it's definitely getting a young person to pick up a book period that isn't um one piece right now is very difficult but as i can speak to from my own experience uh <laughs> but there but there is like it's not there for everyone like this level of deep dive, but I think SSD's popularity and the, the sound you kind of create, you know, like that's what is there. And to me, like everybody's somebody's poser. There's always going to be someone that's not hardcore enough or not punk enough for someone else. But as long as you can connect it back to something. And as long as there's that lineage to me, it's all, it's all fair game and it's all real. And like, it all connects back to SSD. Yeah, I'm surprised when I read um, when people do uh, stories on Straight Edge when SSD isn't included. Um, because I was, you know, I was a fan long before I was a girlfriend or wife, not real long, a couple months. But I'm always surprised when they're left out of the narrative. And I think, wow, who did the research here? <laughs> I think it's because there's so much, especially now, like with punk history, because so much of our 
tradition within it is a kind of an oral tradition. And recently there's been a lot of books about it. And of course there's some, do a lot of documentaries and things like that, but there's still so much of it that is shared by being at a show and someone being like, do you ever hear this story? And some of it's bullshit, like the mm. frat house, Boston Cruise story, but but some. I never said it was bullshit. No, I, like, <laughs> <laughs> I never heard that before. I never heard that. I'm joking. Before. I'm joking. I, I <laughs> what does John Ford say? If you have a choice between printing the truth and printing the legend, print the legend. Yeah. So there you go. Um, one of the uh, one bit I wanted to ask you about, uh, Nancy, is a circle of shit. Were they going by before you left, or no? I did not know them or Brubaker or any of those people. No, okay. They were, uh, yeah, they were, came after I left. So it's interesting how also Philadelphia always there's like a theatricality to the punk rock in a way, like you look, especially with Dead Milkman, and there's sort of like a a humor to it that's so different to well Boston and, and DC. There's like sort of this like zaniness and that kind of runs through to to this day there's like that being yeah. eat the turnbuckle that does deathmatch wrestling in the middle of their shows or rambo who had huge props on stage but it feels like yeah it's just like such a, a you know mummer's version of hardcore i just think that's the personality of the city it's just who we are as um a people <laughs> and and I, I i really see it more and more as i as I'm away from it almost, um, how much Philly has impacted the, the person that I am. And I know it drives Al crazy about me to a certain extent, but that's um, that kind of zaniness and that kind of resiliency and that kind of, you know, you could never F with me enough because to me, that's a compliment if you do. And so it's just, it's just, I don't, it's just a fill. It's a Philly thing as you know, the t-shirt says, it's just who we are, I think. And, and it's always made to me, Philadelphia, a really fun place to be and uh, fun bands to see. And I don't know. It's just. Uh, Plus they have that big festival there. This is hard. You know, the, this is hardcore thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Nancy was a first generation promoter and I'm sure she's inspired some of these uh, other Philly promoters to take the, take the mantle. You know? And well, Joe Harcourt did my, you know, he did yeah. my book party down there and I had never met him. I didn't know him. And Al sort of, you know, made the connection for me. And that guy went above and beyond the call of demand for me, getting me this, you know, huge room in the, in the church and over, I think 230 people came out that night for my book, you know, mm -hmm. it was crazy, but that's, you know, that's the difference between Philly and Boston. Um, when Philly people, they are unbelievably loyal. They have your back. It doesn't matter if you've seen, you haven't seen them for 40 years, they're coming out, they're supporting you. And, um, you know, I could cry talking about it. So <laughs> it's an amazing. And then they came out, I went back down again for a different uh, author series that someone did in like a really high end, uh, fancy club, um, because my book is about Philadelphia. And they all came out again. And so it's like, where's that gonna when I did my book party in Philly, 30 people didn't even show up that, you know, had got Boston, you meant. I mean, Boston. Yeah. When I did it in Boston um, and I had a waiting list to get in and was paying by the head. And so, um, you know, if they would have just let me know, I could have pulled people in from the eh, nobody, just, just, you know, so that's the difference. You know, I, I, my heart is so 
Philadelphia, and it's just not even funny sometimes. And it's getting more that way. The old we should have the Rocky theme come play now. There is like a New York level of civic pride with Philadelphia, it, I find, where absolutely. like anyone you meet, like yeah. an accent too, that's very distinct as well. And uh, Oh, absolutely. I, well, one that I worked really hard at getting rid of. And I think what I, <laughs> I ended, I ended up doing is getting like the worst from Philly and Boston into this like hybrid thing. But being from Philly has also served me very well as a teacher. Um, and so my kids, they read it, they can tell, and they sort of gravitate and trust me because of it. And um, it's, and you know, as a white old woman connecting with kids that look nothing like me, um, come from all different backgrounds and languages spoken, um, to be able to, to build a relationship um, just it's that's Philly that's Philly does that for me and so I'm grateful to that well Philadelphia educators are very popular in my house because of that tv show Abbott Elementary Abbott Elementary, right <laughs> kids love it they would love a, a teacher yeah. from Philadelphia now they'd be like oh it's so great it's so great um it's it, you know it's funny how it is so different in like the uh the Boston kind of like approach to the music though. Like the, like, you know, I'd be the Boston, not LA kind of stuff or be it like sort of the more, you know, Boston crew kind of leaning bands there. There is a seriousness to, to all of it. I guess there's humor with gangrene and kind of that world and the freeze, but certainly with you guys, there was like a, not too funny now. A stoicism. <laughs> yeah. Not too funny now. There's a, but there's like a stoicism certainly to, to the approach to this whole thing. I thought it was so weird that you guys played with the Stains. Stains from Portland, Maine. Yeah. Different Stains. You know them? Yeah. No, it's what I had a film teacher in school who was their roommate back then. Really? I asked, I asked him about SSD and he's like, oh, I wasn't in that hardcore stuff. Okay. But, but I was like, oh my God, did you ever see SSD play? <laughs> that was the first question I asked. They were one of the first bands that like moved. I think they moved to Boston, you know, like, uh, yeah. They're, they're great. That single's awesome. Yeah. Is I it really collectible like it. that single, by the way? Oh yeah. Is it? Yeah. I had it, man. I can't believe it. I sold it. <laughs> yeah, like I I I like you know the band The Tracks? Did you ever see them? No. Okay. This is all stuff that uh Chris Cooch turned me yeah. on to. Cooch is my source for for obscure Boston ah. seven inches and stuff. Like, That's where you get the sickness from? That I did buy my sickness off him. Yep. Oh yeah. Very true. <laughs> That's exactly where I got my copy of the sickness from. And I got like Oh my gosh, like uh there's so many I love all that stuff, like dogmatics and like all that weird Boston uh Mark Thor or... Oh you're you versed on them all the Boston stuff. Oh yeah, like B Willie Boom Boom Alexander and the neighborhoods, are you a big neighborhoods fan? Love neighborhoods, oh, yeah? love all oh. of it. But it's it's such a defined break, it seems, when the hardcore thing happens. Like yeah, like DC. I can't know if I talked, I mean, I talked, but I mean, yeah, we had, a, we blew up the scene. That was the goal there, you know? Yeah. Like, did yeah. you, and that's why it's interesting. Like, you know, that's why I said last time, I think you're the first hardcore band because the stuff you're influenced by, it seems is, is black flag and that West coast stuff that was kind of happening. Dead Kennedy's you mentioned in the ad, that ad. Um, but then also this, the English kind of hardcore stuff, you know, that was kind of popping up around that time. Disorder, discharge, you use that image on a very early flyer blitz is on the back of someone's jacket i think i think discharge taught us that you know it was really 
that the sing, you know, you didn't have to worry, stress out about the singing, you know, because it was so in your face, you know? Yeah. I can't say we're like totally into the English thing, but I mean, certainly Discharge, that first singles and stuff that came out there was like, wow, it's so, so aggressive, you know, it's like uh, vocals, you know, mainly. Well, disorder too, right? Because yeah, yeah, you know they were on the same time. Yeah, I love that. I love their singles. Yeah, there, there's like a, I don't know, like a power to that stuff that was popping off in England around that time. And I think, you know, talk to Brandon, and he definitely, I think John Brandon from NA, he feels the same way. I think about that early uh, punk stuff that was happening in Detroit, where he he didn't like it. He was waiting for hardcore to happen, and when hardcore hit. You know, he was even in one of those early kind of bands and oh. <laughs> didn't like it. There's a sort of, uh, as much as kids that were waiting for punk to happen for that first generation, it seems like there were kids that were sick of it and wanted that refinement and were all kind of on the same wavelength at the same time. And it just sort of spread across America and then around the world. I think Boston was gassed on punk rock, my personal opinion, when I entered it. You know, like, I mean, if I, from an outside of viewer, but I think the people that were into it were kind of still into it you know not i don't think i know they were still into it and they didn't want it to end you know so i think the rival of of the boston crew and and our version of hardcore you know we were trying to signal an end to their reign and uh maybe they saw it and didn't like it you know because that that's the way i felt you know yeah well you you don't want to let go and that's the thing that happens always in punk is there's always that next generation that's going to take it Maybe it's changed now because it feels like people, there's not that people trying to push things as extreme as they could. Mm. But back then it feels like they're sort of like, oh yeah, you see what you did. Wait, you see what we do. Kind of one-upmanship that keeps happening in terms of speed, in terms of world outlook, and in terms of the violence. And it just sort of, uh, it was an, it's like an arms race between generations. I'd say my, my, fo- my focus is definitely on physicality. You know, like I, I thought, I thought music could be much more physical, you know, let's put it that way. That's, I'm not just talking about like the pit kind of thing. That's what I, I don't mean. I just meant the presentation, you know, at the time I was into wrestling, you know, uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying like rolling up right up to the band. I was into wrestling, but I certainly had wrestling in my background, you know, uh, you know, bodybuilding or weightlifting and stuff. So I just thought, you know, Jesus, you know, you get all these guys with long hair, you know, and thin arms in rock. You know, I said, there's, there's room for some guy with, you know, 18 inch biceps and, uh, and some physicalness, you know, I really just thought there was much more potential for it, you know, and that's, yeah. that was my vision. You know, I thought, I thought let's, you know, bring, you know, you get the Ramones, you know, set the template and let, you know, let's, let's bring in some of the other stuff that kind of was a little heavier. You know, I'm not talking maybe as heavy as it is now. I didn't see it going that direction, but, you know, I definitely thought a more heavier, you know, there was room for heaviness, you know? What did you think when you saw the Misfits then? And it looks like a bunch of he Honestly, you know, this is a bad this is a bad trade on my part. But when I see someone in makeup, I dismiss them immediately. Okay, uh, I mean, I I thought the guys. I mean, I wish I got to know them. I mean, they were around me, and we never really got to talk. You know, I wish I got to talk to them, or whatever. But I just chose to kind of not uh, talk to them. <laughs> I don't know for whatever reason. You know, like the makeup. I mean, it's something about like I'm not a big ghoul guy. You know, like in the makeup and stuff. So it just turned me off. Like you know, Kiss. I can't, I was never kissed, you know, Nancy liked to kiss. I just, the makeup was enough, was a, a showstopper for me. <laughs> well, that's that anti-theatricality to it. Like that you see in, in, uh, in DC too, 
where like I could see why and it's funny because Sam Hain ends up forming in DC after the Misfits break up with a bunch of those guys but certainly from Ian's perspective when I talked to him about it he wasn't into that ghouls and ghosts spooky horror movie stuff at all too like he's like this is reality music and it's yeah like I love the way it's taken up differently because I I never really he uh, I never really I definitely you know remember at the time hearing you know when I was going to DC and whatever, I hear it about, you know, that uh, the Misfits were huge in, in Detroit, you know, that was their central, their, uh, I don't know, their home or whatever. So, yeah. Which makes sense. Cause kiss and you know, the stooges and the sort of the, yeah. sort of the top theatrical presentation, they must've gone over well in Philadelphia too. I oh, we, we loved them. And you know, there's, you've seen probably the photos and the videos of the their love shows. hall flyer, the thing. love hall thing yeah. and everything that was, they were huge. And in fact, when I met Al and I came to Boston for the first time in October, I met Angie, who ended up marrying Jamie, the bass player. And um, we met very briefly that night. And then the next month she called me on the phone and she said, the Misfits are playing in at Love Hall in October. Can we come down and stay at your house? And I lived in a one room studio apartment. I was like, come on down. And so they, you know, three, Katie, the cleaning lady, Mary, and Angie came down and we went to that Love Hall show and it was great. But I had been gone up to New York to see the Misfits in 80, 81 and stuff. So I was always a fan of the Misfits. Yeah. I really always really liked the Misfits. But there was there were some diehard Boston people who also, you know, loved the Misfits as well. And then they filmed um the record video, yeah. the video with Rick um at Faneuil Hall and all, you know, all the people were in there. And so, um, yeah, they were, I, I thought the Misfits were great. I mean, there's no doubt about it. They're, you know, great songwriter. I mean, Glenn's a great songwriter. You know, mm-hmm. There's no denying it. Maybe the top songwriter in, in hardcore punk or whatever, right? Well, I think they're, like, to me, they're, like, simultaneously the greatest punk band ever and not at all a punk band. And it's right. this kind of great sort of conflict that exists within this band where it's a bunch of, muscly dudes kind of like that could be doing metal, but they're writing some of the greatest punk songs ever and it works and then it doesn't work. And I can see why people hated it. And I can also see why people loved it. And I think, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Like I'm a, as much as this is a religion, I'm the guy who looks at all of it as just different books in the Bible that I'm flipping mm-hmm. through and getting to take it all in and, and seeing the different perspectives that everyone has on this sort of stuff. Cause it's right. I'm with you on that. Yeah, I was always, I was always fascinated by, Jerry and um, Doyle's uh, father's business, you know, because I was a machinist and an all-around machinist. And, you know, I was, th- you know, I was thinking like, you know, at the time I was like, oh, I should talk to him about machining and stuff. You know, like, Because like, <laughs> I heard their father had some shop, but I didn't know yeah. really the details of what, what they were doing. If I knew they really were doing that, I would have talked to him and maybe we would have had a bond back then, you know, but, uh, but uh, they, yeah, that, I was really interested in what what they were doing with their father's shop. You know, they didn't care about their music. I wanted to know what they were making in the shop. You know, well, because they they, yeah, they were fabricating all their own gears. And actually, I went to that punk museum in Las Vegas that opened up. And one of the things they have is a jar full of spikes that they made for mm. John, like for his leather jacket. They were just too big. They looked ridiculous. So John's just like, I just sat on them for you know however many years. So someone bought them to put them in a museum. But it's it's funny. They were like, you know, it could have totally changed SSD. You guys could have had like axe guitars and yeah, know, yeah. How yeah. we rock would have been totally different metal vibe. I really should have been in the band. Let's face, it. I should have been in the <laughs> Misfits. If I could have got past the monster, if I could have got past the monster, because I had the size. Yeah, you know, I probably yeah. could have wrestled. I could have wrestled with them in warm ups before the show and stuff. You know, well, but, this, uh, 
Oh, go on. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. Just I could have. You know, we could have shared a lot of good. But I mean, I, I, uh, <laughs> I couldn't get past the makeup. You know. <laughs> That's amazing because also you're both influenced by pro wrestling. Like pro wrestling yeah. is the secret influence on punk rock because I think in the same way punk rock subverts rock and roll uh, and hardcore obviously being part of punk rock. But like I feel like um, wrestling subverts sports and looks at sports in the same sort of like, you know, it's all work, brother. I feel really I got I got I want a, a disclaimer on my wrestling comment now. I mean, I was into wrestling, and I'm fully admit I'm not going to hide. I don't hide away from anything. But you know, Chief J, Strongbow, Pedro Morales, Bruno San Martino, that era of wrestling. When when Hulk came, I was already out. Yeah. So uh, I missed a lot. You know, I'm really like probably everyone's everyone. What they think about wrestling is not my vision of wrestling. You know, like I said, I'm very uh, '70s wrestling. Uh, I'm not saying I just you know put them down. Actually, me and Nancy used to go to the gym. It's a place, Nautilus Plus in, in Revere, and all the wrestlers used to come through there. So we used to see the Honky Tonk Man. Uh, we saw uh, Roddy Roddy Piper. I'll come through in their, in their regular, like, workout gear. So, you know, I was into that. Oh, shit, Roddy's going to be here today. You know, I wanted to see him in the gym, you know. Uh, Honky Tonk Man, let's see how he lifts, you know. But, you know, but, but, but now I look, at, I look at it, and I look at these fans, and I got to admit, I see I see a lot of like an analogies to like what's going on with Trump and everything. Like these people are believing shit they shouldn't be believing. That's real, you know. And uh, that's the scary part of wrestling, you know. Like like if people believe it's real, which I got to admit, I guess my my take back then was, well, you gotta be, you know, you gotta take those bumps, man. You know, I, I wasn't gonna go out and say it was real, but you know, I believe the bumps were real, you know. Uh, now you know it's so, so fucking un- it's so. It's so much like acting or a TV show or something, you know. It's like uh, it's it's more so than it was for me, and I I'm more concerned about the audience. You know, are they fucking brainwashed to believe this shit? Well, I I think it is. I think your criticism of it obviously is valid. You know, Trump I think learned how to cut a promo in the WWE ring during his WrestleMania run. Anyone I talked to backstage that dealt with him back then says that he was very polite. And taking everything in and learning. And that's when I think that Trump character was born. Like, if you look at him prior to that, he was a buffoon that was made fun of in I Spy magazine. Or uh, they would uh, clown, or the the Apprentice, which appealed to, like, probably a lot of Democrat voting people, if you look at the people that were watching it. But wrestling is when he met his base. And he was in the middle of the ring shaving Vince McMahon's head just like Stone Cold would have done or The Rock would have done. And... You know, so I think, yeah, your criticism of it is completely You might have found that power, right, when you looked out in that audience and saw those people, right? Definitely. But it also is the place where you learn the truth, right? You learn that all these people are full of bullshit, and it is kayfabe. It's all like wrestling where it is real, and there are deadly consequences. Like you said, all those bumps, and they still are real. Every time those guys step in the ring, or women, or or people, um, you know, step in the ring, they're risking dying. You know, because yeah. that's, oh, yeah. it has happened, right? Like people. I'm a guy dying. with a bad back, so don't give me. You know, <laughs> exactly. It shortens their life, you know, and, and and all this sort of stuff. But it's also pretend, much in the same way with politics, where these people are pretending to be something, uh, even though it's very real. What's happening? They're pretending to be something. So I don't know. I find, and there's a lot of wrestling fans that are very progressive, and a lot that identify as straight edge. A lot of straight edge hardcore kids in pro wrestling these days. Yeah. Uh, D- Darby Allen, uh, oh, is he? Brody King, uh, CM Punk, uh, you know, and I think 
definitely that's where a lot of straight edge kids are, or a lot of people are learning. Young people are learning about being straight edge. And like you said, it, it is negative in some ways, but it also merely a positive thing for a young person to be like, oh shit, I don't need to drink and do drugs to fit in. I can kind of find power within myself to have my own fun and do shit. And then maybe come to the stuff later in life. Like there's no, you know, even if you're just straight edge for two years, like what a great two years that can be for you. Ma major props to Phil, you know, CM Punk for, you know, promoting straight edge. I mean, he probably took it, you know, to the next level as far as, that 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 thing that that vision i had of like you know tell one person that one person will tell 10 people so you know yeah he gets a lot of credit you know he was and i think he was he might have been the first guy to do a straight edge gimmick but there's certainly a guy out west that was doing a straight edge gimmick and oh, yeah. prohibition josh prohibition up in detroit who was doing a straight edge gimmick at the same time and m dog who was his partner uh, Matt Cross is a huge SSD fan. Nancy, Nancy's swallowing all this right now. I'm looking at. <laughs> hey, I was a huge wrestling fan back in the day, but more, but more with the with the people that you talked about, Al. The you know the Andre the Giants and <laughs> those people were. You know, we had unbelievable wrestling matches in my home back in the day. Yeah, well, I think that's sadly where the uh, the influence goes on a lot of people is to try it at home. Yeah. In this corner, <laughs> that was huge in my family. Yeah, it definitely is. It's well, it's like the people's soap opera and it can be mm -hmm. used to manipulate people negatively, like you're saying with the Trump stuff, or, you know, you can also tell great stories of triumph, you know, and, and empower people like the stuff I saw with wrestling uh, in First Nations communities up north in Canada when I was making that documentary series or wrestling in the Congo or where it, it, it means a lot to the people out there and it can be used to bring people up and educate, not educate people, I shouldn't say the wrong word, but empower people. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a, uh, much like punk, it's, it's got its positive and negative sides to, to this magnet. I still turn it on. You know, I, I, I watch a, you know, a little bit, but I got it. Yeah. Did you see, it. did you see Raymond Pettibon painting Darby Allen's face on AEW TV? No, I, I saw it on social you media, <laughs> on, yeah. on social media. How is, is, it, Raymond, is it Raymond Pettibone like, um, kind of whacked out kind of i don't know he is the biggest fan of darby allen in the world and i watch his twitter post he's kind of like all over the map he's I mean, a little right? he's 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 a you know right wing like, i think right he's a, he's an artist no i think he's just like wild you know in the okay. same way like artists are indulged in a way that musicians aren't even indulged like they're you know you can be eccentric to the point that you're abusive and still be a functional artist that people pay a lot of money for their artworks for it seems like art is the place where you're indulged with all your okay i'm trying to understand him when i see his posts i'm like what is this guy talking about i think it's the same way the springer that you brought up earlier like there's yeah, some oh, people that good are, analogy are, maybe you know that yeah that are just like not necessarily tethered to uh <laughs> i don't know springer is out of i mean like you know i want to go back i really want to like springer okay <laughs> but he is bizarre i mean beyond bizarre i mean the text he sends we got a group texting going you know some of the things he writes down i just don't even i don't even know what he's talking about you know it's talking bizarro stuff you know there's a uh legend about that japanese band gauze did you ever hear gauze from japan I not. yeah use that e they just broke up after 40 years probably the 40 hey. yeah the greatest <laughs> hardcore band i think i've ever seen live like this tore my face off i saw them in their 36th year as a band mm. And they played for an hour, no stops, just just tear your face off fast hardcore, you know, but like not grindy or metally, just like like hardcore, punk hardcore. Mm. Um, incredible. But according to legend, they would practice for five hours a week 
and then go their separate ways and knew nothing about each other and did not communicate. So the band was the only thing that brought them together. So they had no personal entanglements ever interfere with the intensity of the music they were trying to make. And it's sort of like, man, where would SSD go if you guys were able to do that? Yeah. Well, we kind of did it in a way. Like, I mean, that's the way the mentality I had to take, you know, I really did because, you know, I mean, I used to get, you know, people don't understand it, that uh, I used to get people telling me, like, calling me up, Springer did this, Springer did that, you know, it's constant, like, tattletale kind of thing. To this day, it still happens, you know, but, well, less, but I mean, back then, it was was over, kind of took the fun out of it, you know, for me. I'm not someone's baby, I didn't get into the band to be a babysitter or, you know, watch, you know, watch them and stuff, so, you know, that's, that was the unfun part for me, is that, that, you know. I had to go through that, you know, whatever. Yeah, no, I definitely, uh, it's, it's amazing because like, here we are talking about this thing that you did because we're talking about generally the first two records, obviously we, I want to talk about the later records. Believe me, there's a lot we can talk about too, but those first two records are like something you did as a young person and you know, you've lived this whole life. And I find like, it's interesting when you talk to like someone like Tommy Stinson from the replacements, he feels like he's been trying to get away from this thing his whole life. Whereas I feel like, you know, in a lot of ways, you're almost like, you know, the, the like a, a carrier of the legacy of what you're doing. And it, it is something that affected who you are in a positive way. And you want to bring that forward. Like, it's just so interesting how differently legacy is kind of held by people to the point where I don't even think you appreciate how big the legacy was. Like Nancy was saying. At times. I, 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 Legacy, as I'm trying to think of the subject of legacy. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not one to really go around and tout legacy, but, you know, I am now because I think I'm facing more my mortality, you know, and uh, certainly it's not, I'm not doing it to make money, you know, but I think it's time to celebrate what we did. And, uh, you know, that's kind of where I'm at with the whole thing, you know. Well, one day I hope we smoke weed before you leave this mortal <laughs> coil. And um, yeah, I hope you go back I, to the cannabis level. Yeah, yeah, that could happen. I mean, I've, I don't think it's a big deal. I mean, I don't think, like I said, I don't think it's a big deal. <laughs> well, I was thinking you, when you started talking, putting the legacies together, or what I was talking about religion and stuff, I was thinking that you know the Bible was written many years after Jesus wasn't around, right? Or even the, the you know, so I guess you can you can rewrite history however you want it, you know? Yeah, no, definitely. And that's the that's why I think that's good that there is documentation. Like until Nancy's book came out, I didn't really appreciate the impact you had Nancy on things. Like I knew of you obviously because your character, one of the few women that make it into American hardcore, unfortunately um, is well, not unfortunately that you're there, but I mean like, unfortunately that there's not more kind of conversation about this sort of thing, but yeah, like- I don't think that they knew at the time, my role in Philly, you know, and that was, uh, you know, such a profound disappointment to see men who definitely carried on the tradition and and did so much for Philadelphia. But, it, you know, not to see Allison and me and, and Ron Thatcher and people that really kind of in the and sadistic exploits set it off be acknowledged was was disappointing for me. But I how could they ever know all the excruciating minutiae of every scene? It would just be impossible. And I think they did a great job with what, you know what they did it was fabulous i don't know if it was a podcast or something but yeah it was a podcast maybe the drew stone thing when you hear the story of how rackman and blush put it together you can tell that they were new at this and stuff so you know they probably didn't think through it 
did everything, you know. But they still did a pretty remarkable job because they their vision of 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 heart, American hardcore was exactly mine. That you know the Bad Brains were who they were. This was you know that it was it was wildly accurate. So the way they described each city, right, and the different connections and stuff between each city. Yeah, but truly understanding who the major players were that we all kind of loved at that yeah. time. Yeah, I remember when it came out because I was obviously a lot more invested in what hardcore was and wasn't back then. Um, I was, I was upset. I remember being like, they didn't include this band. Like, how can you talk about it without having this band mentioned? And then going back and rewatching it now, I loved it, you know, and there's certainly shit in it. That's, I mean, I love it because I think people reveal themselves in a way that they wouldn't reveal themselves now back then in that documentary. Um, But also because like you're saying, it's, it's, you can't capture everything and everyone's version of punk rock is going to be different. And, and that's the thing that's amazing about it is hearing one or in this case, two people's perspective on it, bringing all these voices together. Some of them are no longer with us. Mm-hmm. Um, it's such a cool document to be able to look back. It on. is. And they couldn't Good get some people that they, you know, they, yeah. the dead Kennedys and this, they just couldn't get them. So um, they didn't want to take part in it. So um, w- with what they worked with, I thought they did a pretty incredible job. I did an incredible job. Yeah. But until your book came out, you know, and this was actually brought up by, um, you know, some of the riot girl people that have been on the show is that which blows you know, you my have, mind, blows <laughs> my mind. You, but, you have no idea, <laughs> but like it's amazing when you look back on these scenes and how many of the women were in putting on shows, or you know, and you talk about this too in the book, and we talked about it again the last time, but like actually like doing the administration work to make hardcore actually happen. And there are certainly women that were in bands and amazing bands like conflict or fastbacks that were like hardcore punk bands and doing things but a lot of that work that was being done to build this thing was invisible work or until recently and in your book i think really did a lot to shed light on the invisible work well thank you i you know i felt like um i needed to be a contributor in some way and i had zero talent so i was a good organizer and i've always been a good you know i went i was in girl scouts and i went to catholic school so we knew we had to raise money and we had to organize things and so um, that was my contribution to the scene. I always want to be a contributor in anything that I do. So um, that's that. What did I, I well, Nitz, Nitz, What did I tell you? We were talking about this just recently. What did I tell you about when I wanted to, when we came to Philly? Like Camden, oh, God. <laughs> what was the words I used? He said, "Don't bring me to a war zone." Um, and, and, you know, we were watching, we watched, I don't know, some documentary yesterday and they were like Camden, New Jersey, the most violent city in the world. <laughs> it's insane. And, and, it's and he's like, why did you bring me there? And I was like, <laughs> you don't know. We were like jaded. We didn't, you know, every, everywhere was really rough and, and, you know, every night something happened. And so like, we didn't really know. And he's like, my God, you know, I should have ran after that. <laughs> yeah. I There's few. I places- thought you were going to really, I didn't think <laughs> it's if, if my parents didn't have your van, you probably would have never saw me again. I mean, yeah. Ian Mackay almost was killed that night. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Almost killed the leader of the freed world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There goes Jesus. There goes hardcore but- Jesus. <laughs> But it was the most incredible hardcore show I ever saw in my life. And there's video that proves it with SSD's set and, and minor threats. There's no denying the energy, the explosiveness. And I do believe the fear and the chaos up the energy 
on that night and made it what, you know, not that those bands wouldn't have been, you know, explosive and crazy on their own, but that was sort of a life and death situation. Like really? So. Yeah. Camden, New Jersey. Live and learn. Live and learn. (laughs) I think Camden is one of those cities that still lives up to the hype today. Even when I haven't been there recently, but like playing shows in Philly and then staying in Camden, you're like, wow, this is like Gary, Indiana or (laughs) Vancouver or something like a place where it's like, it's, it's really real. But then again, if you, you know, if you look as crazy as the place was, if it was, if it were not for the Getter Riders who were Camden residents who saved our asses that night, um, who knows what would have happened. So it was kind of cool to me that they accepted our community in their community and made that, made sure that we were safe that night. Otherwise, I don't even want to think what. Did happened. someone pay happened. them though? Or didn't they get paid somehow? I think we paid them in beer. That's oh. a tip, you know. If you <laughs> yeah. have any cash, it's like here. Yeah, like you. we, you know, <laughs> they demand they demanded entry, and you know, uh, Allison, very beautiful, very persuasive woman, and and you know, they wanted to help us out when they realized our predicament and what we wanted to do, and so you know, they were great. They were really great to us, and so that was to me. That's a, a great coming together of two different kind of organizations to make something happen. Yeah. It definitely like, well, these are like, these are things that have become so legendary, you know, like, yeah, like this or the fear on Saturday Night Live performance, you know, and those sorts of things. You weren't there, right? Like Al? No, no, we kind of like knew it was happening sort of or whatever, but we didn't, we weren't heading to, we didn't head to New York that, I mean, if I had got a call, hey, you're going to get in, I would have been there, you know, but I mean, at the time when I heard what was going down. You know, no one was like giving me an inv- invitation there or anything, so that's why we didn't go down. You know? Yeah, it's one of those. It was like they they invited the DC people down, and that was the word that we heard. You know, yeah. And Ian's name apparently is the password you said when you went backstage. I find the thought of Ian McKay and Henry Rollins like shaving John Belushi's head the night before that all went down, or not? Maybe it was the night before, but they shave his head at some point, right? And it's I'm like not that. Sure. That's like the coolest. That's the coolest shit ever. That's that's so awesome that these worlds converge. Yeah, I remember time, watching I, that I would, in real time. You know, on I mean, TV. At the time, I would have like if I got invited down the Saturday Night Live, regardless if Fair was playing, I would have jumped at the opportunity. You know. Yeah, yeah. No, it was well, and also it's like you're saying, Nancy. You watched at the time. It's one of the least watched Saturday Night Live seasons. It was such a low point for that show. Like Lauren Michaels wasn't even there. And right. That's, we knew we knew they were going to be on, and we. Um, you know, we all had like a watch party at, at um, my apartment watching it and just being like, this is the greatest thing ever. It's the greatest. It's it's to this day, there's never been anything like that on nope. TV. And nope. before we played much or MTV Canada for the first time, we sat in the dressing room and YouTube had just kind of come out and, you know, you could watch anything on YouTube. So we were watching right. that over and over again, being like, please let it go crazy like this. And it would, it went nuts, not that level, but still <laughs> it was like, Oh, so great. <laughs> so awesome. I, th- I, th- I think at the time I wished like black flag was the band that played, you know, I think maybe that's, that's what I was thinking at that time. Yeah. And I think they were right. They were the band that they wanted originally, but or I'm not sure the details, but I'm saying that, that, to me, that would have been the ultimate if Black Flag had played that show. Yeah, that would have been. But, you know, once again, I think Fear would have been, you know, they were like, oh, the, I guess Decline had already come out, right? And so they were probably. Maybe that's like, why, I don't know. I don't know. Really, I don't know how, how. I mean, I remember Fear, you know, did a tour 
you know, it, but they were like a little bit behind the other bands. Anyways, I just thought, I, I thought, I didn't think fear represented hardcore at the time. You know, that's, that was my feeling. You know, I thought black flag did, you know, or circle jerks, you know, did you like the middle class? Were you a fan of them or did you hear them back then? I, I remember them. I can't, I don't remember them right now. Uh, okay. So I can't really say, but I remember them. Uh, I also wanted to ask you about Jake Phelps because talk about someone who's had an impact culturally, you know, Thrasher is as ubiquitous as the Nirvana t-shirt at this point. Uh, and a member of the Boston crew. And I just, you know, rest in peace, obviously, but what are your memories of Jake? Well, I'll give you my memory. So Jake, Jake, you know, joined our crew. He was a skateboarder. I think, you know, we saw a bunch of skateboarders at a movie we saw or something. We got to, you know, yeah, he, he, he quickly became an integral part of the crew, but Jake was a disruptor. You know, he, he, he wanted to, even within our own, you know, our own thing, like, 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 kind of heading towards Springer kind of as, as a person, but not as bad, you know? Uh, but definitely a disruptor guy, you know, guy just wanted to fuck shit up really, you know? Uh, he probably was the real original fuck shit up kind of guy, you know? That his goal would just be walk through life and fuck, fuck shit up, you know? Mm-hmm. And that being it, said, he, he also had a heart of gold and, and I, um, I've told this story online, but he, um, before the Thrasher shirt was as ubiquitous as it was, I saw some of my kids with Thrasher stickers on their skateboards. And I was like, oh, Thrasher magazine. I said, you know, I know the editor of that magazine. And they were like, get the hell out of here, Burrell. No, you don't. And I was like, I will call him up right now. And they said, can you get us free stuff? And I said, well, let's see. So I picked up the phone and I called Jake at Thrasher and he picked up and um, he sent and he did it twice. He sent me two big boxes of merchandise for my kids and uh, and like good stuff too, like hoodies and stuff. And they just thought it was the greatest thing in the world. And I thought that was, you know, that was really sweet. So, you know, there's so many stories of, of Jake, you know, giving skateboards to kids and doing, you know, doing things. But as Dal said, he was definitely a disruptor um, mm-hmm. that um, liked to push buttons. <laughs> Challenged me on the way home. We were, I think we we're heading home last, you know, we'd done a little mini tour of, West Coast, and I think we're up in Northern California. I don't, I can't remember what the discussion was about. They pretty much challenged me, like challenged. I, I said, I just pulled the van over, and I got out of the, I pulled the van over, and said, "Let's go, let's go." <laughs> and then, of course, he got out there and he chickened out, you know. So, which, did, which kind of what I figured, you know. But I was ready to, I was ready, you know. Let's go. And uh, so he's kind, of, he's kind of guy that would push it, probably take it up to a point, but then he'd pull back, you know. He's the kind of guy that I knew he would pull back out of something. He didn't have. You know, he didn't, he he wasn't uh, as extreme as maybe he thought he wanted everyone else to believe, you know, Except at all times. Except in skateboarding, he never bailed. Uh, skateboarding, yeah, he didn't, <laughs> he didn't back out on that, you know. He, he wouldn't back out on anything in skateboarding, you know. And, uh, you know, he's a, he's a, he's an interesting guy, you know, good, good, good to know that people like him walk, you know, a part of our uh, culture or whatever and stuff, but, but, you know, definitely a disruptor, you know. Well, you're talking about that disruptor kind of fuck shit up attitude and you know like i've always felt that johnny knoxville i don't i've never met johnny knoxville but i've always felt that he's kind of playing jake phelps a little bit and that maybe that's the foundation of jackass certainly the foundation of big brother is thrasher and that sort of like don't give a fuck skateboarding thing which is obviously hugely influential on odd future hugely influential on darby allen like here's this guy who's influenced by you with the straight edge thing and by jake with the skateboard thing and it, and it's all coming out of the boston crew I talked to him 
you know, Thrasher created that show where they go on the road, road something or whatever. Yeah. So I saw that show come out. I called him up. I said, because he was on and uh, he was kind of in the background on a few episodes. And I wasn't sure if he produced the show, you know, so I called him up. This is like the last few years of his life or whatever, I think. And I said, are you involved in the show? You know, you doing, you know, because I mean, I like the client, you know, some of the guys were doing some nasty tricks, you know, which I knew would be Jake. But I mean, when they were like, you know, drinking piss and all that kind of stupid shit, which I could see Jake maybe endorsing. But I was like, you know, that stuff didn't really turn me on, you know. Anyways, I talked to him and, you know, he, he didn't I don't, I can't remember his answer to my question, but I, I did uh, did ask him, you know, I was concer- I was concerned. I saw a video he did on somewhere and he looked like he was like really messed up, you know, so I was kind of concerned about what was really going on with his situation. You know, I know he'd been in a lot of accidents. He had a lot of pain issues and I had a lot of spine issues. I had eight spine surgeries, you know, so I wanted to share some, some, you know, hot to hot, but I could tell he wasn't willing to like open up with me really. You know, like I could tell he was hot, you know, like saying, Oh yeah, I'm not on anything right now or something like that. So at that point I knew that he really couldn't open up to me. So that was disappointing. You know, like I wish he could have talked to me. Maybe we could have got somewhere, you know, but, that's that's my last memories of him before he died. I think there's a shame, I guess, around all substance abuse type thing. But I think also with this, as a former straight edge person, there's a guilt you carry your whole life talking to someone who still adheres to it, or it is it's like a, a Catholic guilt, I guess, or something where even if you don't believe in it anymore, it's still somewhere in the back of your mind that. I don't know if Jake ever believed in, to be honest. I never asked him, you know, like, I mean, like, here's how I approached that thing with my crew. I just, I led from, you know, by example, but I never went back and like, uh, uh, I don't know. I never spied on him and stuff. I never really, you know, I wasn't into, I didn't, I didn't want to, you know, I wasn't into like really, you know, uh, like the priest, you know, looking for confessions or something. So I don't know what he really thought about the whole thing. I mean, certainly later on, not much later on that I exited the scene, there was this place called Queensbury Street in Boston, which I consider like the beginning of the end of what I consider the Boston hardcore scene for me, because shortly thereafter the scene moved to the rat, you know, from, from the gallery, from some of the more do do it yourself places. And there was a lot of drugs and drinking going on this Queensbury Street. And Jake was, I'd say Jake might've been the leader of Queensbury, you know, if not one of the leaders. And so, you know, that's all I can say about that, 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 uh, Nancy, I don't get anything to add on that. You lived by Queensbury. I mean, I lived, I lived near there and, and um, it was just a lot of um, decadent, decadent live for Decadence. the moment kind of, <laughs> yeah, kind of living, uh, you know. Yeah. Well, it's, nothing it's, good, nothing good, nothing good comes at, uh, like they said, uh, a famous coach said once, nothing good comes at four in the morning or something. You know? yeah. Nothing good happens at four in the morning. Yeah, Ken from the Dropkick Murphys was on uh, recently, um, and he was kind of talking about like being a hardcore kid into all the stuff that was happening, and then getting super fucked up on drugs for years and drinking and and partying, and then Dropkick's kind of being his like return lifeline or something. Yeah, like coming back yeah. out of it and getting sober, and then starting this band. So it seems like that kind of was something that happened to a lot of people in Boston at a certain point that were. Interesting, because I don't know his complete story, but I, I I always like heard that you know whatever thought that there was some kind of rehab involved in his life, and that's when the Dropkick Murphys came or something. So you know, yeah, he was promoting shows after getting out of oh, rehab, yeah? and then just put the band together, kind of out of that. 
But, you know, once again, like I watched Joe Biden come out on stage in Ireland to like 30,000 people as a Dropkick Murphy song is playing. Yeah. Or it's oh, yeah. wow. wild the places that that went. Yeah, I did a, a college board conference where I, I was at the time that regional president and when i came out they played that music and i was like oh my god this is so this is so wild you know it was it was incredible it was kind of cool i was i was happy about it and i certainly appreciate um the way ken does speak up against um nazis and fascists and and i applaud him for that and i hope he keeps doing it so well and i like that might be the one of the biggest songs like up there with you know blitzkrieg bop in terms of like punk songs that's played everywhere like it's the one from the movie you mean the song yeah yeah Yeah, like that um you know i guess it's um it's what's his name's lyrics too Um, oh woody guthrie no woody guthrie they found like a a sheet of paper that he wrote shipping up to boston on and Ah. the song around that and uh yeah and it, it was uh you know, but it's like it's played for it's in Oscar winning movies, like you said, and it's in Joe Biden's and entrance it's, music. It's yeah. And it is to me very uniquely Boston, even if if Biden co-opted it, you know, um, it's it's whenever anybody talks about Boston, you hear that. Music yeah, yeah, it is. And maybe you can play it as an outro one after this episode <laughs> we don't have any when i started this podcast they were like okay just don't put any music on it you'll never have any headaches so i'm like okay <laughs> imagine with dropkick murphy's especially that song there might be some licensing yeah. hoops to <laughs> jump through uh this has been unbelievable and i've kept you both for a very long time you probably have a lot to do today uh, nothing I, to do today <laughs> well i would love to have you both come back on at at some point in uh in, in the future, because this is uh, a lot of fun to kind of get to dissect all this stuff with both of you. Yes, we're a big fan of your show, so yeah, we, thank um, you. we're really honored to be on it. And uh, well, I guess, like, lastly, I wanted to, you know, one of the things that came in the book is, like, we talked about this last time about not you not wanting to be on Boston, not L.A., but I was rereading it in the book and just how assured you were of the band to want to do your own record, to turn down this opportunity for a nationally distributed compilation that would have put you in so many people's hands, but like you had this approach kind of mapped out, it seems. And it's just, oh, it's fascinating to kind of look at the band like that. But to me, it just comes back to the, the same thing, right? Finding people that do their job well. So at the time, you know, I didn't know if these guys did their job well. So I, I didn't feel like I had anything to lose necessarily. I mean, you, you know, just cause someone has a bag of money, doesn't mean they do their job well, you know? So uh, at the time, you know, I figured I had enough finance, you know, I pulled together enough money to do it ourselves. So I didn't see like they had any advantage, but you're right. You know, there is an advantage because if they, if they did it well, they would get that record into places that maybe I couldn't, you know, and I'm not saying it that that's probably the most successful record. So uh, clearly, uh, you know, that record, that record sold itself, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't think they really, uh sold it you know and also i don't think we talked about the christmas. i didn't like the title either you know the title title bothered me and the whole thing you know so it is but it's funny how that title becomes part of like you talked about great slogans that becomes one of the great slogans of punk there's this oh is i don't think that's a great slogan no well, you ask me marketing there, I would, i'd give that an f 
what is there? <laughs> this is Phoenix, not LA. Is the Phoenix compilation that came out is afterwards? It? Yeah, and then there's uh, this is Berkeley, not West Bay, with AFI on it. Now that's that interesting because like that's like the uh, that's like that book, the like you know something for dummies or something, you know? Yeah, like uh, yeah, like I mean that'd be funny if there's like a whole series like everyone you know says. <laughs> Not LA or something, you know. It it kind of has become that in a, lo- a lot of ways because I guess yes, LA has also no New York, right? The reaction to it. That's you know the other thing I find is the way that punk ends up inspiring people even when they hate something. Like, oh, I hated the way music was going, so I made a band that was way faster, or I made a band that was way softer because it was too macho, or you know, I just think that's the great thing about it. Like, no matter what, there's inspiration. What do you think, Al? <laughs> About what? I, I said enough. Of it. I said all I had to say. <laughs> well, next time we do this, you'll be high, and then you'll just be on my level and just want to blow afterwards. Yeah. Talk about Boston, not LA. Just philosophically, just go on Boston, not LA for an hour and a half. But uh, thank you both for doing this. Thanks for okay. having us on. We appreciate it. Thank Very you. Good.